and we're live. Anthony, welcome back, man. Thanks for having me again, Fran. If there's one thing that my listeners have been asking me about fucking relentlessly is for you to come back, number one, but to talk about the mythology because we kind of skipped that almost in the first episode. Yes, we talked about a lot of ologies. We certainly did. Oh, oh, I got a word. Oh, he'll kill me if I can't think of it. Oh, and was it an omniologist? Omniology? Omni, as in... um, Multi or... Something for everything, as it were. I think it was omniologist. That's uh, Daniel Gavin, Gaza, a past as guest. Multiple. Friend of the show. Omni is multiple, isn't it? I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, very good. Omniology. So, omniology, yeah. yeah. My first omniologist as a guest. <laughs> but curiously, mythical Ireland, we spent three hours talking and didn't really talk about mythology. Yeah, exactly. Not at all. Not yeah. at all. Now, people were fascinated. They loved it and they wanted you back. But yeah, absolutely. But the, the recurring theme was, you know, Getting to talk about the mythology. <laughs> yeah. So where do we start? Like, well, it, it yeah, probably a very good starting point is to talk about when my own interest in mythology really began. Yeah. Which is, I can remember exactly when it was. It was January of nineteen ninety nine, which is, uh, is that nineteen years? Yeah, it'll be twenty years next January, uh, when I met Richard Moore, who's a, an artist based in Drogheda. And you see, Richard came to me because he was an artist, but he wanted to know more about astronomy. Because he'd heard from people in Drogheda that I was interested in astronomy and I knew what I was talking about, apparently, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> that has to come with a little disclaimer. Um, so he came to me and said, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit about astronomy. And then he started to talk to me about the megalithic monuments, which I was interested in anyway. And then he starts talking about mythology because turns out he has a good knowledge of the myths pertaining to the monuments and I suppose from the get-go um, we worked together for eight years on Island of the Setting Sun which is my first book you know he was my co-author effectively and uh, the two of us were just totally engrossed in the whole thing so I taught him astronomy and he opened up my interest in mythology so that's where it began and I didn't realise growing up, and I don't think a lot of people do realise how much mythology we have. I think I did mention that in the last interview, that we have a huge body of myth and folklore, massive amounts of it, uh, to rival the richest mythologies of the world, basically. And so much stuff that's sitting in manuscripts and hasn't been translated or isn't, let's say, widely studied or widely available, you know. Some of it has been popularised. Um, so you can buy books pertaining to the Tainbo Kuling and stuff like that. And, you know, everybody's heard of the uh, the Children of Lear, for instance. Most people have heard of the story of Finn McCool and the Salmon of Knowledge. But that's really the tip of the iceberg and the iceberg goes very deep, you know. So I, I learned that not only was there a huge body of mythology, but... There was a great deal of it that pertained to Newgrange and Nouth and Douth and, you know, the Boyne Valley region. So I, it was like a roller coaster, really, you know. We really, really got stuck into it. And I mean, born out of that was this huge tome. Island is by far the most comprehensive of the three major books that I've written. Uh, I think it runs to about 100,000 words, you know. It's the equivalent of a thesis, you know. Yeah. 
And that was born out of this relentless search for mining the information that was contained in the myths and in the archaeological records and, you know, um, trying to tie that all in with astronomy. It was really quite magical, quite a an uplifting um, um, period of research. And to be honest, although myself and Richard aren't sort of in close contact now, it's not that we've fallen out or anything. We, we just, we know, we don't have that same level of contact that we had during those years. Um, that led, that has led really to, it led to the creation of Mythical Ireland as an entity, as the website. And it has really led to everything else I've done since because I've, I've just become hooked on it, you know. I just can't, I, I'm, I, I can't let it off the lead, <laughs> to use your own <laughs> phrase. I can't let the fish away, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. I'm like a I'm like a salmon fisherman down along the boyne, and I've hooked a big salmon, and I want to reel him in, and I want to hold him in my hand and see what he's like. Now I might release him afterwards, but you know I'm I'm on the heel of the hunt, as it were, and I think there's a huge amount of stuff that I still haven't discovered either. But I think that's great for great for you great like great great for your your kind of mental well-being and i only spoke about it today this idea of your approach circuitry in the brain it's it's dopamine what's the word dopaminergically activated or it, dopamine is the is the is the neurochemical that's basically being produced when you're in exploring mode so just that kind of hunt for knowledge and it not being there like you you couldn't just for a start you couldn't google anything back then Really, could you? What, no. 99? Uh, well, the best part of 20 years ago? Uh, Not like we had it today, to, anyway. I'm trying I mean, to remember when Google began, because I remember using it when I worked in the Drogheda Independent, and I worked there until 2002. So certainly, the internet, I think, was in its early earliest period. I mean, I set up mythicalireland.com in March of 2000. Okay. You know, um, and Google definitely did exist then. But yeah, I mean, the internet was fledgling and... It wasn't the resource that it is today, and none of what's none of what's available today was available. So, for instance, an awful lot of the old uh, manuscripts and translations are actually now available online. Archive.org is a fabulous website, right? So, all of the Dunchenikus is on there, for instance. And if, like, forgive my ignorance, but what is that? The well, that's the collection of myths about eminent places in Ireland. So myths about the Hill of Tara, myths about Newgrange, myths about the Hill of Slain, and a host of different places as to where they got their names. It's place name mythology. Right. Now, a lot of it was translated by um, Edward Gwynne and published in the early part of the 20th century. But you see, while researching for Island of the Setting Sun, I had to go to libraries and source that and make copies and write notes and all the rest. Now, from the comfort of my own home, I can just download a pdf and and leaf my way through it incredible you know yeah no absolutely but getting back to the actual mythology is there what's even the best way to phrase it like you mentioned the last day the tooth of dadana yeah they were the the ancient gods am i right in saying that yes and was there a first one of them or did they all rise at the same time or what way did that play out um, and is that even a good approach to talking about the, the uh, mythology? Well, it is, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I've i taken a particular interest in mythology that would be described as uh, cosmological. So relating to not just the 
astronomical aspect, the sun, the moon and the stars, but cosmological as in, you know, how we relate to cosmos and how we see ourselves as part of something greater. And also I've taken a big interest in creation mythology. So the early mythology, what I consider to be the earliest myths, you know, uh, stuff that I think, by the way, predates Newgrange. Um, but there's no easy way to approach it because there's so much. The Tuatidanan belong to a, a sort of a body of mythology that would be described as in the invasion mythology. Okay. Because according to a manuscript, now remember that most of our myths were written down by monks in the medieval period. So in the last millennium. Okay, I wouldn't have even known that. Yeah, so. but they had survived by word of mouth up to that point, And we don't know how far back some of these stories go, but we can take some educated guesses. But the invasion myths belong to a book called Leber Gabala or Lower Gawala, as it be pronounced in modern Irish. And that is the book of the takings of Ireland or the book of invasions, as it's commonly known. And it chronicles a series of arrivals in Ireland, both before and after the Great Flood. Now, you have to understand that because these myths were transcribed by monks, there is a Christian influence in them. Yes. And the Christian influence of the Lower Gawala is that it basically tries to tie in Ireland's um, genetic history, I suppose, with uh, some of the figures of, some of the biblical figures. So, for instance, the first person to arrive in Ireland, uh, shortly before the flood, was Kezair, who's said to have been a granddaughter of Noah. And she came here. He wouldn't let her onto the ark, Noah's ark. So he told her to go to Ireland because he said that he considered that Ireland would not be subject to God's judgment because nobody lived there. Therefore, there was no sin in Ireland. So it was unlikely that Ireland would be part of God's punishment. So Kezair travelled with two other women, um... Sorry, I'm wrong about that. No, it's... Kazair travelled with 150 women and three men. Looking guys. <laughs> <laughs> you would imagine. But you see, what happens is that... Um, yeah, two of the gentlemen die. Um, uh, there's an excess of women, you know. And uh, I think part of the reason the two, the two others die is because they're judged by this, you know, a fearsome Old Testament God for uh, having indulged in too much of the old hanky-panky with the ladies, you know. Anyway, the long and short of it is that the flood does actually come to Ireland and they're all drowned except for one of the men and he is Fintan MacBawcra. And Fintan is sort of like an ancestor figure, the lone survivor of the flood. And part of the reason he survives, according to the tale, is because he didn't partake in the excesses, the physical and and lust, lust uh, didn't seize him, as it were, with the with the, with the ladies, and thus he is freed of God's judgment. It's a very interesting story because, um, obviously, you know, a lot of it is allegorical. However, can we rule out the possibility that there was a, a great flood? Um, is the Great Flood myth something that is just part of a creation myth or does it pertain to actual events? And of course, in Fingerprints of the Gods, Graham Hancock, that gentleman we spoke about the last time, uh, mentioned that there are something like 500 different versions of the Noah's Ark myth from diverse cultures around the world. So in other words, the f the, the myth of a, of a, a man uh, 
or several humans surviving this great flood on an ark with animals and then seeding the new world is not unique to the Bible, you know. But Fenton um, survives in a place called Tultinja, which I believe is in modern day Tipperary, on the top of a mountain. And in order to avoid the flood, he turns into a salmon and then afterwards into an eagle and then into a hawk. So he's a sort of a changeling. And he's fascinating because he becomes important in later myths as a sort of a a, a, a gentleman or a, a figure who has lived almost forever. He's, he's immortal to, to, to an extent. He lives for 5,000 years throughout the histories of Ireland and he's occasionally consulted for his great wisdom, you know. Curiously enough, the story of the Salmon of Knowledge, which was caught... Uh, in the Boyne, um, in the bend of the Boyne, near Ro- Rossnery, but you know, not not far from Nouth and Newgrange. Uh, in one version of that story, the salmon is named, and the salmon's name is Fenton. So it's sort of the same sort of idea, but so you have to start with the book of invasions. So there's the Kazare and her entourage who are killed, and then the Partholonians. Partholon and his people come and they suffer a similar fate in that they come to Ireland and um, they settle here but after a while they're struck down by a plague and it kills them all and do you know where they're all buried? Do you know Tala in Dublin? I do. Well Tala is from the Irish Tala Muncher Partholon which means the graves of the people of Partholon really? because mythically that is the place where they were all supposed to be buried when they were struck down by the plague so the Dedanans are later arrivers. Um, they come, descend from the air in ships, in a mist, in the west of Ireland. Now, some scholars maintain that the mist is caused by the fact that they burn their ships when they land. So they land at a place, I think it's called Dunmark, um, which I think means the fort of the uh, the ships. But I could be mistaken, and I'm not an Irish scholar. Um, and that the smoke is what co- actually caused the mist. And is is that a well known thing? Like, did the Viking were the Vikings known to do that, or or someone else? Um, possibly. That's actually a good uh, question. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, but all I can say is that the the fact that they descended from the sky has led some people to speculate that we're talking about aliens, you know. Of course. It's the and go-to. that's inevitable, you know. It's like, <laughs> it doesn't always, you know, what we were talking about last time and the whole thing about metaphor and allegory, you know. Um, after the Dedanans, now the Dedanans are the ones closely associated with the monuments, with the she, as they're called. So the old Irish word for uh, what we what might know as a fairy mound um or today, an archaeologist might call a passage tomb. They were called she, S-I father D in Old Irish, sheed, or S-I father D-H-E in Modern Irish. And is that what I've heard you refer to Newgrange as? Yeah, sheed in Broga, yeah. Okay. So that's its name in the ancient stories until such time as Angus takes ownership of it and then it becomes uh, Brug Mac and Og, which means the brew or the mansion of the son of the young. Uh, Angus Machanog is his full title, or Angus Og, as he becomes known. So the Dedanans were the ones who were 
said to have distributed the mounds to the various principal deities of the Tuatha Dé So just to give you a little bit of background to that. And sorry, sorry, just before you do, so there was that, the old the old guy that lived for 5,000 years, what was his name again? Fenton MacBorkrat. Fenton MacBorkrat, who turned into a, a salmon and then a hawk and then an eagle yeah. or whatever it was. And then not in the not-too-distant future, the the Danans landed on the west coast in, you know, ships from the sky and yeah. whatever else. And now we're moving on to... Well, I have to go on before I go back to the, okay. to, to the Danon because next to arrive are the Milesians. Okay. And they're so-called, pardon me, because they're they're called after the king of Spain, whose name is Mil, M-I-L. And Mil actually means soldier. And his name was translated as soldier of Spain. And they came basically to take Ireland from the Dedanans. And there were some fearsome battles between the Milesians and the Dedanans, uh, including one at Teltown, which is not too far from where we are here, actually. Uh, Talche, the Battle of Talche. Uh, at the end of which um, the Dedanans uh, reach an accord with the Milesians. They basically tell them, look, go back out to sea. And if you can land again, then we'll give you the country. So they go out to sea by a distance of nine waves, according to Laura Gawala. Nine waves. So I don't know what that is. You know, <laughs> how many fathoms is that? You know, is that half a mile? You know, <laughs> yeah. is it three hundred yards? I don't really know. It's funny. And um, what happens is Mananon, who's the sea god, and he's by by the way one of the principal deities of the Dedanans, raises a fierce storm. And so I've I've drawn attention to this. I'm not sure if I'm the only one that's done it, but I think it's really peculiar that there's this myth about a whole load of warriors who arrive from Spain in ships and their fleet is half wrecked at sea. Now it's off, I think, the east coast because they eventually arrive in the Boyne Estuary. But it's a Spanish armada, yeah, you yeah, know, of course. long before the the other Spanish armada takes place. And, and speaking of the timeline, so when, you know, roughly within, you know, is what are you talking? Are you talking tens of thousands of years? Or hundreds no, of thousands you see, of years look, or? this is pseudo-history. So... This is this is mythology, really. The curious thing about the Book of Invasions is that, you know, the, the annals try to date some of these things. So the annals date the arrival of the Milesians to approximately uh, 1694 BC, which would be Bronze Age, you know. Okay. Which would be about a thousand and a half years after Newgrange was built. Um, but the archaeological record and the Laragawala don't tally. Except for that, yes, as an island nation, we have undergone several waves of invasions throughout yes. our history. Yes. And undoubtedly, the arrival of farming, which precipitated the construction of the passage mounds, um, was one of those invasions. Whether it was a, an armed thing or an insurrection, I don't think so. I think it was more likely just an influx of new ideas. So the two things correlate, but they don't correlate uh, historically, as it were. Okay, so in, in relation to agriculture, presumably these myths don't predate agriculture, or do they? Now, this is where we could spark a whole little rabbit hole. We could go down a rabbit hole here, you know. <laughs> um, so I do want to talk, at some. I'd like to talk at some stage about a couple of myths that I believe might be pre-Neolithic. Uh, but for the moment, uh, just to stay on point, um, I think we're dealing with stuff that, as I said, was written down a thousand years ago, medieval times. And the provenance of which we can't know for sure, orally and verbally. 
um, except for that there are some aspects of the stories that would hint at knowledge of the monuments, particularly Newgrange, in its early state before the collapse that we spoke about the last time, which would indicate that there's something within those myths that pertains to the earliest times, even if some aspects of the myths are undoubtedly later. So, for instance, today I wrote a blog post about a curious story called Altram Chia Gawether, which translates as the fosterage of the houses of the two drinking vessels. <laughs> uh, that pertains to Newgrange. It's a story based largely at Newgrange and pertains to some of the chief deities of the Daedanans, including the aforementioned Mananon and Angus Og and Elkmar, who was the then owner of Newgrange. And... Um, so it mentions this these milking vessels that um, so there's two women in the story. One is the daughter of Mananon, and she's named Kirkhog, which is the Irish for beehive, apparently. And the other is the daughter of the steward of Newgrange, the chief steward of Newgrange's name is Dichu, D-I-C-H-U. And his uh, wife gives birth to a daughter who's named Ethna. And uh, she's supposedly a Dedanon goddess, you know, and some scholars have said Ethna is another name for Bowen who would have been the sort of chief female deity of the Boyne Valley from whom the river Boyne is named Boyne. Um, so the, the vessels are described as being golden, you know. So you look at the metal and you think, well, that's obviously, you know, the person who's writing in medieval times is using, the, you know, um, medieval uh, language and descriptions to describe concepts that might, you know, might have changed over time but some aspects of the stories remain the same anyway the Milesians um, finally land their ships half broken and half of them killed and Aurgeen that guy we talked about the last time Amergin, uh Brightney lands on the Boyne Estuary and claims it for the Dedanans and they reach an accord with the two Dedanans that is that we're going to take the country and you're going to take the the other world, as it were. And sorry, you said he landed at the Boyne Estuary and claimed Ireland, but I thought that the Danon were were in Ireland already. Yes, no? they were. Okay. What I'm saying is that because they landed again, the... The Milesians gr- landed again. The well, yes, the, for the second time. Do you remember I was saying after their first skirmishes with the Danons, they... Were sent out the, nine waves. Yeah, basically. Okay. And if they could land again, the Danons were going to agree to let them have Ireland. But you see, it was kind of a tris... Or it was kind of a... It was there was a twist in the tale, as it were, because it seemed that the Dedanans were vanquished, um, when in actual fact uh, they were taking the she, which were, I think, um, they were granting themselves a sort of immortality, really, because the she were the portals to these other worlds, to these heavenly realms, the land of promise, the land of youth, Tiernan Oak, you know, all that stuff, um, while the Milesians they could venture out into the mortal world and not be seen here. But they, they were gods, am I right in saying that? Or It's difficult to say exactly what they were, you know. Were they deified ancestors, which is what some people think they were, you know. And so you said you mentioned a minute ago that one of them was maybe not the god of the sea, but was... Mananon. Mananon. So there was, let's say Mananon was the, the sea guy. Was there a, you know, a storm guy? Was there a river guy? Was there a, you know... How many of them was there, to, to Well, to an extent... Um, so, for instance, Dagda, I I very much see as a solar deity, you know, and I've written about that. 
in my books um not so sure about storm deities but there are similarities between some of the figureheads of the Didanans and some of the figureheads that you encounter in for instance Norse and Greek mythology um well, you know so like a lot of scholars have drawn similarities between Lu and certain uh, you know European deities as it were so you do see similarities um I think where it differs is that Ireland is so insular I mean we're so cut off from everything else that I think there's just a, always a unique twist there's always a unique uh, factor to our stories although some of them would appear to share a lot in common with uh, myths from other parts of the world um anyway the Danans are agree to give the Milesians Ireland and they inhabit the Shi um this is not the end of them by any means and the prophecy in folklore is that the Danans will return from the Shi at a time of great need to rescue Ireland or to bring Ireland to glory at a time of great struggle some folklore speaks about you know um some great end of the world event um some great battle that happens um in the valley of the black pig when the black pig runs again and that that's the time that the Dan- the danans will emerge from the she um so you know there's all sorts of stuff there like the cosmological aspects of the mythology what does it mean for uh deities to basically go underground so is that to do with a part of the Irish psyche which is prone to allowing invasions to take place unfettered, if you follow me? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've drawn uh, similarities to the myth of the Dedanans and the Milesians in the Laragawala in my Newgrange book to the time when uh, sovereignty of Ireland was handed over to the Troika not too long ago. Yeah. Um. After the collapse of the economy, I remember within only too within well. the past decade, that you know we have this meek tendency as a people, sometimes just to allow this stuff to happen, you know, uh, as if we're almost powerless to do anything about it, and sure, you only have to look at the last thousand years of our history, to see that play out very strongly, you know. Um. You could obviously argue the the opposite. This, you know. But what what do they say? Um, out of the like the the British essentially rule the world, but they couldn't copy the or they couldn't conquer the island closest to them. Between that and the the whole fighting Irish thing that you hear so much about as well, so that would in a sense contradict what you're saying about our our meek nature. Now, granted, I I get where you're coming from, but I just wonder how you would um reconcile those two. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> curveball <laughs> yeah thanks Rand for throwing me completely off um, I think that one of the things that the British uh, occupation did that was quite clever was an attempt to de uh, is this a word de-culturize <laughs> you know to yeah anglicize our place yes. names um, to ban well, the language and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um. There was a, a a serious effect of the uh mass 
emigration of the famine was that an awful lot of the folklore and the mythology emigrated with that, uh, especially in parts of the West and Northwest. Um, and then even to the extent that we, a lot of us, started to speak English. And so we lost a lot of um, the, the, the myth and the nuances that would have been present through our own language in those myths. Because a translation is never the same. No. You know, like an awful lot of the Dinchenicus is metrical. You know, it's it's po- it's poetry, basically. It's prose in the form of poetry. It's written in a way that, you know, the Irish um, um, appears to rhyme or there's a rhythm to it. And that rhythm is broken, of course, when you translate it, you know. Um, so there were sort of very serious and detrimental effects to the mythology. I think we're very lucky that we've ended up with what we have, given everything that happened. Of course. I think we still have a huge body of stuff, um, which includes uh, a lot of the material that was collected by the Folklore Commission. Again, I think we spoke about that the last time in the early part, in the, well, in the 1930s especially, because it was recognised that you know, the the oral and folk tradition was dying. Um, so it was important to, to save as much of that as possible. So I think in that regard, we're lucky to have ended up with what we ended up with. Uh, of course, for great periods of our later history, the, um, the material that's in the manuscripts was inaccessible. You have to understand that a lot of that has been translated only in the last couple of centuries. And sorry, when you say manuscripts... Well, I'm talking about all of that stuff that was written down by the monks. Okay. You the, know? the Book of Kells type stuff? Or well, saying well that? yeah, well, the Book of Kells is, is biblical. I'm talking about the Irish m- mythology that was written down in the likes of the, the Book of the Dun Cow and the Book of Leinster, etc., etc. And again, forgive my ignorance, but are, are these artefacts that we have in museums or are they things that you've heard of? Or Yeah, no, we, we have some of them and some of them are in the uh, British uh, Library as well um, in different collections. Um but um, you know they've they've been some of them or a lot of them have been translated. Um, so the Toyn, for instance, as we know it, um, is translated from two recensions or two versions that are contained in two different manuscripts. The Dinchenicus, I think, is largely contained in the Book of Leinster. You know, so this stuff is only a thousand, uh, approximately a thousand years old, allegedly. You yeah, know, yeah medieval mythology but it's not medieval you know a lot of it's much earlier but sure can you prove that well I don't know we spoke the last time about the myth the folk stuff about Newgrange in the 1960s that later turned out to be true that was proven by the archaeological work you know um, so there's, there are certainly aspects of the stories that I, as I say contain information that would appear to go back but yet the stories seem to be set in a medieval time frame as in, you know, the the weaponry and the clothing and the material possessions of some of the myths, of course, kind of belie a medieval time frame. You yes, know? and they they might they might betray the the ancientness, say, or the the age of the of the actual origins of the stories. Yeah, yeah, effectively, yeah. So we we had the two of the Dan, and then how did we get talking about the 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 meekness of the Irish? 
Well, I was just drawing uh, attention to the fact that, you know, um, the Troika of course, basically yes. took control of the country without too much of a protest from the government of the day. And the public found out almost by accident, thanks to the diligence of the press. You know, I don't think the government was going to even tell us what had happened, except for they were pressed by various uh, members of the journalistic profession to do so. So um, I just drew parallels to that in my Newgrange book, which was written in 2012, which I found was a time of great reflection in Ireland, a time when we were sort of, you know, well, we were uh, trying to, I think we we'd, we had, you know, suffered the scandals of the church and the political establishment had, well, the old order had collapsed, really, with the collapse of the economy. And then, you know, the economy itself was in tatters. So people were reaching out and searching for stuff, you know, and searching for meaning, as it were. Um, and some of those people... Um, found that the older uh, myths and the older sacred sites gave them something in the darkness, as it were. Um, might sound a little bit uh, aloof or a little bit strange, but certainly that was my experience. And I found that around that time, people who were coming to the likes of Newgrange and the Hill of Tara were actually seeking for that little something different or something deeper, should I say. Um, because they had suffered uh, something of a loss of soul as a result of all of the things that had happened. So a lot of people suddenly found themselves powerless, um, unable to pay bills and pay, pay a mortgage, wondering how they were going to feed their kids and all that stuff, you know? Oh, yeah, well, I, I know myself. Like, I, I suffered terribly with depression after I had the rug pulled out from under me, essentially, when the Everton collapsed. I was involved in the construction industry. And I think a lot of people lost their sense of identity. Yeah. And that's why they kind of went searching for whether it was the mythology or even, even now, like uh, Ivor McQuillan, a guy I've had on twice, he speaks of um, the use of psychedelics and, you know, getting in touch with the spirit world. And he's by far my, my biggest draw, say. And it's the people that, it's between himself and yourself, they seem to be the top two favourites of people that I've had on. And I think it's no accident. I think it's it, it pertains to exactly the point that you're making now that, People are looking for, they're searching for something. You see, we have to move past the notion that mythology is mere storytelling. You know, myth contains something that comes from the depth of the human spirit and the human experience of life and all of its awesomeness and all of its challenges and all of its difficulties. So... At the core of a country or nation's myth is something that helps it, that nurtures it, that in essence brings it through the dark times, as it were. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that the folklore says that the Danans will come back, because I think that that's got to do uh, psychologically has got to do with the retreat of our better natures into a, a place of darkness uh, in a situation where our uh, our existential ex our our actual existence 
is threatened. So the arrival of the Milesians uh, marked a huge turning point for the Dedanans who thought themselves inconquerable and immortal. Now, they were right about the second one because they were immortal to an extent, i.e. the mythology of the Dedanans represents something that is latent within the spirit of uh, people in general, Irish people, I think, because it's, 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 it's a peculiarly Irish uh, set of myths. And that that is something that we need to draw forth in times of difficulty. So I'm really not surprised that when the shit hit the fan and the economy collapsed, and with it, don't forget, this isn't just an economical thing. This happened in conjunction with the collapse of religion and in conjunction with the collapse of the political order. So since the rising, two parties have dominated Irish politics, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and all of a sudden, both seemed to have lost their grip. Uh, you know, now, only to an extent, you know, politics have, has become more fragmented in Ireland in a way that hasn't happened in some other European countries because some other European countries disallow the small one par- one seat or two seat parties from forming coalition governments you know on the basis of how they tally the results etc etc um, but so there was a collapse of a lot of things and what are people to do in these situations well one answer was uh, migration so we had the almost a return to the 1980s for a time around the yeah around 2010 i think 2011 there was mass youth emigration from ireland yeah. and a huge number of those people are abroad permanently now what do know? they call it brain drain brain drain yes yeah, a great phrase isn't it you know but um i just found because i was dealing with the the myths and the monuments i found i encountered a lot of people in those years who were yearning for something, hankering for something. And it was as if, to me, something of their own Daydanan nature was reaching out from inside of them, you know? Well, there are stories. It's it's our mythology. Do you know that kind of way? Like, it's it's, it's our ancestors that were, yeah. were talking about this. And what does that do? Like, what do you think that does for people? Why Why should people have any interest in their mythology? I'm going to be reaching here now, but... I think this the, the you said it earlier there about the the flood myth. We we all across the globe we all came up with essentially the same reasonings for why things happened. Like if if there was a famine, it was that the gods were angry with us for for something that we did, or whether it was the flood myth, or whether it was the hero mythology, or the the kind of the virgin mother. There's all these different things in mythology worldwide. Now, listen, you obviously know more a lot more about that than I would, but. They're all. It's all, the sentiment is the same, but the individual examples are slightly different. So, somebody living in a a, a desert land isn't going to have the same water god that somewhere like Ireland is going to have. So, yeah. it's 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 our weather. It's our it's our climate is built into it. Our terrain is built into it. Yeah. You're you're not going to have like they didn't have wheels in South America because of the terrain. So you're not going to have a lot of kind of chariot chari- You're not going to have gods on chariots charging down um, cities or or whatever. 
Um, so our own mythology is it's it's ours. It's 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 in the landscape. It's in our climate. It's do, 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 do you understand the the point that I'm going to labouring to make? Admittedly, yeah, I I was interested in. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about the fact that your mythology relates to your geography and your terrain and your surroundings and your climate, etc. Of course, yeah, absolutely. That's natural, isn't it? It 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 is framed within its surroundings, its natural habitat, as it were. What I meant no was psychologically, why would people be interested in their mythology? Why why was Carl Jung so interested in mythology? And I think the reason is that at its core, it contains, is it information? Is it some essence of our sort of eternal and deepest natures? You know, that what is within us is almost as infinite as what is out there in the universe. Somebody said, I can't remember. Remember we were talking about butchering quotes the last time. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm using a quote now and I haven't a clue who said it. Um, you know, that we're reaching to something that, you see, the reason re- most people, oh look, I'm generalizing now, but most people in, in the last, say, let's just talk about the last few millennia of human life on Earth, have been religious to an extent. Very much so, yeah. You know, most people around the world have practised a religion or been part of some religion or spiritual movement. Well, all peoples, I think. Has there been a a, a tribe or a race or whatever, a group of people who haven't? Mm. It's very difficult to say that there has. Uh, What is the reason for that? Because there is, we are seeking for the nuministic, the experience of the divine or the experience of uh, a mortal presence in our own lives. We are clutching to the hope and to the idea that beyond this corporeal form that we have that is so damning for us, because we said the last time, you remember we were talking about the church and how it, it battered people about sin and we had enough to deal with, which was our own corporeal death. You know, this thing that we we all face, this death that we face. So I think we clutch to hope that we are, uh, in fact, somehow immortal and that there's something after this life and that we exist in the beyond. I think that's one of the things. But just, I think, also the experience of the divine can come in the most simple things. So, for instance, for the builders of Newgrange, what was that? experience of the divine i think uh one of the one of those crystalline divine moments must have been when that shaft of sunlight entered that dark cave and what a revelatory and illuminating and nuministic experience that must have been a religious experience an uplifting powerful thing to see this light in the darkness and of course it's such a metaphor in world religions light in darkness you know um, and the idea of, I suppose, hope, you know, and that in the darkness of our own demise, that there'll be a light and a travel down that tunnel of light that we spoke about in the near-death experience to something powerful beyond, some sort of awesome uh, uh, gathering of conscious forces um, that is beyond the threshold of our own death. So I think that myth is far more than just fireside tale 
let's sit down and talk about okay some of it is and undoubtedly you told stories to entertain but they don't entertain if they don't have meaning and how do they have meaning because we identify with the archetypal nature of some of the characters that we encounter in myths and some of the scenarios that we encounter you know that um allow us as ordinary mortal beings to transcend uh, through to some sort of divine plane that we can for a moment even in our lives be equal to whatever god or gods there might be you know which is why uh, a lot of the gods have very human characteristics because we they are basically reflections of our wish to have that eternal nature are they also reflections of the, the archetypes are they reflections of our ideals so let's say that they're there's something to strive for to and to, and to, i suppose to strive for and at the same time be afraid of because there's the there's the hero in us all say but there's also the devil in us all so that you have to be very careful that you you don't go too far down one path and i don't know does that yeah, make no, sense oh or? absolutely yeah and um from the last interview too i think we spoke about necton's well and how bowen approached the well even though she was told she shouldn't and the denchanica story says that no none shall look to the bottom of the well and i often ask the question why should somebody not look to the bottom well what should they fear about approaching the well and looking into it and of course in the jungian um analysis that water represents the unconscious and the peering into the water represents the peering into the unconscious and when you encounter uh, uh, the unconscious forces the difficulty is that they can erupt quite violently upon you and basically cause you to lose your mind that sort of thing and the danger is that in approaching the well uh, that we want to delve too far too soon into those deep aspects of ourselves I think myth has a way of, and especially in the sort of more primitive uh, cultures, and we don't have to go too far back in our own history to encounter primitive Irish people, you know. It's not that long ago since we didn't read and write, you know, and since our stories were all communicated by word of mouth and we didn't know what was fact or fiction. But sure, everyone's what great, great, great grandfather was essentially a peasant. Well, this is it. This is it, you know. I mean, my own grandparents... Um, I've seen their details in my grand my my paternal grandfather's details in the uh, in the census of nineteen oh six or was it around that anyway around the turn of the twentieth century and sure look half of the people who are uh, you know who are uh, counted for the census the the enumerator is that the person who takes the details was signing their name because they couldn't write their own name you yeah, know right so you don't yeah you don't have to go far back to encounter people who for whom uh, myth and fact were intertwined everything that came to them by way of knowledge was passed on orally from somebody in their community and do you think those stories back then do you think that if we were a lot less intelligent than we are now that the stories would be more relatable is there a kind of a base nature to them? Are we, are we Have we gone too far down the kind of academic in, intelligence? Well, I think that's undoubtedly part of the reason that myth has lost its appeal because we've become so analytical. 
and that we've lost to an extent that intuitive side of our nature that just understands that there's something important about telling this story even if we don't necessarily understand it. I think that it's important to tell the stories because the meaning can percolate subconsciously. In other words, you're telling stories and you're listening to stories and um, you don't are you're not consciously immediately aware of any great meaning to your life in them but perhaps the meaning is transferred in some uh, subconscious way i've heard an analogy to, to that me that loves me analogies uh but to what i think you're talking about so the idea is if you have a group of school children let's say first or second class or, or whatever age eight or ten year olds out playing a game of soccer together they'll play all day they play a game of soccer you pull them in individually and ask them the rules. And individually, none of them know all the rules, but collectively they do. Do you know that kind of way? So yes. collectively, there's a collective unconscious as well, which I think Jung talked about as yes. well. Yeah, yeah. So you might, you might be, it might be percolating within you subconsciously, but at the same time, it's percolating en masse amongst us all collectively. And the more that we kind of talk about it, the more that we trash it out, either consciously or subconsciously. Yeah. Um, I think that we are so analytical in nature now that we're only interested in the, um, you know, we're only interested in analysing those aspects of the myths that can be analysed in that subject to our criteria, you know. And that it's all very, you know, uh, left-brained and it's all very academic and it's all very um, almost sort of materialistic in nature, you know, which is how life has kind of gone, in, certainly in Western society. We're so enthralled by um, the alternatives. We spoke last time quite a bit about atheism in Ireland. But those who have left the traditional church who are not atheists, what are they doing? I think a lot of them are reaching out to um, Eastern um, religious culture. Very much so. So we've got a lot of people who practice yoga and meditation and Buddhism and all sorts of stuff going on. Um, the reason that won't serve them fully and wholly is because it wasn't the, by and large, um, you know, we have to talk about eth ethnicity here, that it wasn't their mythology to begin with. It wasn't part of their story. So our story, um, you know, is there for us to mine. It's there. The, our, our myths are there to be retold. Yeah, we're not of Buddhism if that may, our, we're not of the Eastern no. traditions. We're of our own Irish mythology. Yeah, and I think that's something that um, the likes of what's his name? Uh, is it Alan Watts? He's very popular on you know he's dead now, but he's very popular uh, on his books and on YouTube, etc. And I think he went to the East and studied all that and brought it back with him. But there's there seems to be a sort of a almost a hedonism when it comes to um you know that a search for a religious experience that has to be outside of your own culture you know it's almost as if people have denied 
you know, I think in Ireland, for instance, a lot of people, um, this is a strange one. Uh, A lot of people perhaps see Irish myth and the Christianity and the Catholic Church as branches of the same thing, you know. I wonder why it is that um, an Irish person who has decided to opt out of the Christian church should then adopt or uh, uh, adopt uh, an Eastern philosophy. When they have their own homegrown stuff here. Yeah. Now I'm not suggesting people go out and buy Druids costumes and bang drums and smoke weed and whatever you have to do <laughs> to feel like you're a Druid. I'm really not talking about that. I'm talking about a genuine immersion into their own story. And maybe they'll find something there. This all sounds very tenuous. I'm sure your listeners are saying, you know, he's rambling. And to an extent I am, I know, because we're just exploring ideas here. Um, and, you know, it's it's very important that people understand. I'm, I, I said this last time as well. I'm not academically trained in any way. My last uh, qualification was my leaving cert. I don't have anything above and beyond my leaving cert. Um... So it's important that people understand that. I'm not coming at this academically. It's an exploration, as this whole 20 years of writing books has been for me. Well, I'm glad you threw that in there because I was kind of conscious that somebody might be tuning into this as the first time hearing you speak and then got into whatever minute we're in now and saying, wait a minute, who am I even listening yeah. to? Yeah, oh my know, God, yeah. I've just wasted whatever yeah, yeah. time it Couldn't is. Couldn't blame them but for no, switching you, off. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, you've, you've, you've written, is it is it four, three books? Well, three works of non-fiction plus two works of fiction. Okay, so three, but and when you say non-fiction, you it's all in the Some people the Irish say my non-fiction say. is a bit fictional, but <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's got it's got all the references and everything else. Yeah, yeah. So no, it is exactly, it is yeah. non-fiction, like yeah. Um, so sorry, where were we? Or well, I was just saying that you know this was an exploration of ideas. Um, yeah, so very much so. I'm inclined to follow my intuition, which I've done in all my work for the past twenty years. Yeah. And I think there's an intuitive aspect to mythology, you know. So what is mythology at its core? It speaks to us of human experience in life. Addresses, I think, to an extent, some of the big questions of life. And attempts to put us in touch with, you know, our, you know, divine and eternal natures. Uh, or at least I think that we're aspiring towards that with some of our mythology. Um, we just happen to be very lucky as a people that we've got loads of it. We've got, we've got loads. Of but we, we've almost got too much of it, though. Not, not, not yeah, that no, you could ever right. have too much, but what I mean is from a from a starting point. If somebody who wants to kind of get into it with, with Christianity, say, you know, you, you, we, we got shoved down our throat in primary school, so we, we kind of know all the stories. But, I mean, my here's my recap of Irish mythology. There's Fionn McCool, the Tooth of the Danon, there's Newgrange and other kind of monuments. There's um, Tierna Nogue, is that? Yeah. There's Tierna Nogue. I always get that mixed up with something out of Into the West. Uh, oh, well, I think, yeah, there are aspects of Tierna Nogue in the Into the or West maybe that's movie. Or maybe yeah, that's yeah. what it is. But again, I, I, wouldn't even, I couldn't have even said that with any kind of certainty. And any time I think of something, I'm like, oh, did I did I see that in, on, you know... An onion article, or Water for Whisperers, <laughs> or in a movie, or, or is this actually part of the mythology? So there was Tiernan Og, the Salmon of Knowledge, um, 
there was the the giants. Um, is that part? Of the, is that Irish mythology or is that yeah. folklore? And is there like? Ah, no, there are giants you. in Irish mythology, like the Fomorians, who are sort of like an evil race who the Dedanans battled with at the Second Battle of Moitura. You know, um, Balor of the Evil Eye, who's mentioned in Island of the Setting Sun, is one of those. He's like a cyclops, you know. And then the Fur Bullock, I think, were also supposed supposedly. Uh, supposed to have been giants as well, you know. Um, I'm interested in giants um, as a representation of something that is bigger than the human mind can comprehend in a, in in an ordinary human. So, in other words, it, it is something superhuman, you know. So, the myths of the modern world are really uh, contained in those popular books such as the Harry Potter series and Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. And, of course, similarly in movies, you know, um, we we find the myth of the world uh, today uh, locked up in popular culture, uh, more so than our inherited culture. But what we don't realise is that uh, intertwined with a lot of that popular culture are uh, mythical themes and symbols and characters that come to us from the various mythologies of well mostly the european existence i mean nobody can read tolkien without thinking they're reading some great you know celtic epic you know some great european mythical story really you know because it's got shades of that Uh, and I, i spoke last time about star wars and the fact that it's influenced by various world myths including some irish mythology and then the fact that it appears to harbor within it a sort of a myth of the modern man so i saw something in um i think it was rogue one where they're going to destroy the city of is it Jeddah? um and they're in the spaceship and they destroy it from space and send down this huge beam that blows up the city and the devastation is catastrophic you know it's akin to watching a nuclear explosion and i just thought while i was watching that that that's a very powerful symbol for the existential angst that we spoke about last time and that undoubtedly a lot of human beings are feeling right now about the possibilities so you know there in the in you know as a very central image of some of our most popular movie mythology shall we say is an image of the potency uh, of of and the power of human beings and i'm not just talking about a, a, a zeal and a religious awe and a, a wish to become like the you know ascetic luke skywalker who's off on his island uh, in in the latest movies uh, living the life of a hermit um, and very much being like a medieval monk, as it were. I'm talking about that dangerous uh, phase of our existence that we have entered in recent decades, where we have the potential to go completely off the rails, having lost our mythology, and to get into this mode of annihilation which we have already entered on several occasions in the past few centuries. So our mythology was an anchor to our sanity to a degree? or I think so. I think so, and I'm not the only one. Um, a grounding, say. Yeah, a grounding. So what is the purpose of spiritual elders in a community in 
you, you know, let's call in prehistoric or early historic Ireland, let's say before the arrival of Christianity, what is the purpose of the senior elders of a community, the shamans, as it were, or the priests, uh, in communicating these uh, myths to the initiate, as it were, and the younger members of the community? The purpose was to give them a grounding in life and to help them to understand that life ain't easy, buddy. It ain't just all going to be roses. You know, people are chasing this materialistic dream right now in modern life where they think good job equals good salary equals happiness. And we spoke about that again last time and the can of worms that that is that, well, well, what is happiness and how do you measure it? And does your salary and your material wealth uh, and the life that you have zipping up and down the motorway stuck in traffic and, you know, presenting this false ego, this mask to your employers or your fellow employees and yourself. wherever you work. Yeah. And does does that make you happy at the end of it all? No. Um I think the reason that community um prevented catastrophe um was because there were always those people in a community who could ward it off uh, by various means and some of those means in traditional cultures were initiation rites rituals etc and then undoubtedly the uh, the mythical the symbols and the characters and the warriors of myth were all designed to communicate something to us whether that was to be communicated at a fully conscious level or at a subconscious level but as you say a grounding a grounding for your life that sets the the tone for you that you know you lose your innocence at some stage and usually in traditional cultures that's at this, the initiatory stage when some rite is carried out on a youth, uh, maybe a teenager approaching adulthood where they're taken away from their community and they're brought into the wilderness and maybe I think in some traditional African cultures they're circumcised etc etc. You know that something happens to you there in which you are seen to grown up and to have grown up and you're seen to have returned to your community then as a a person with you know a, a, i don't know a, a certain amount of wisdom and a, a man or an adult you you, you return a man you, you come of a boy, age you, you come yeah you leave a boy you come of age and you, you return a man so is there an irish version of that because there i've never heard of one well i i think i think i think there is I think there is. So, for instance, I'll give you an example of what I would call a shamanic myth. And a shaman in Joseph Campbell's description is somebody who who has... Uh, well, okay, this is a little bit maybe different to an initiation. But to, just to give you a sort of an example that's on those lines, Campbell spoke about the shaman as being somebody who had a, a significant breakdown and a cracking up and then who went away from their community and went off into the wilderness where basically they encountered themselves in the darkness and you know um came to terms with their own faults and weaknesses as humans yeah, that dark night of the soul yes and then returned to their community whole as it were uh that they in essence had through their own suffering come to heal themselves and remember who was it said only the wounded physician heals and that applies very much to the traditional shaman. In other words, only someone who's gone through the suffering uh, has the knowledge to heal someone properly. Um, well, in the myths of Newgrange, there's a story called Ashlinga Angusog. This this is the the dream of Angus Angusog, who took ownership of Brunabonia or Sheedenbroga from the Dagda, who was the chief of the gods, the aforementioned sort of solar deity. 
and Angus takes ownership of Sheed and Broga and it then becomes known as Brew Mac and Og after Angus. But Angus uh, has a dream in which a woman visits him and he reaches out to her and she disappears and he has this dream for several nights in a row. The woman appears to him, this beautiful maiden, and she's more beautiful than anything he's ever seen, but she disappears again. Now, of course, in the Jungian analysis, that's his anima, you know, the feminine aspect of himself that is projected into a, an image of a female that he is attracted to. And he basically starves himself. He won't eat and he starts to waste away through lovesickness. And um, so the, the assistance of his parents, Bowen and Dagda, is sought. And they furthermore seek the assistance of Bob Jarog, who's one of the Dedanan deities, who actually later became uh, king of the Dedanans. Uh, Bob Jarog is a, a brother of Dagda. And so he says, look, we will find her. I promise you, don't worry, we'll find her. And eventually they find her. And he says to Angus, you have to go and see her. She's at a lake called Loch Bale Dracon, which is apparently translated as the Lake of the Dragon's Mouth, which is in modern day Tipperary, apparently. So he takes he takes him there, but he explains to Angus that she's a changeling. So for one year, she's a swan and for another year, she's a human. So on alternate years, she's a human and then on the other year, okay. she's a swan. Um, and so he's taken to the lake where she's in the form of a swan and she's surrounded by thrice 50 or 150 other swans and Angus has to pick her out and Angus walks to the shore and immediately recognises Care. that's her name uh, uh, Bub tells her tells Angus his, her name is Care. and he's immediately able to pick her out even though she's in swan form now and not in the human form that he saw in his visions and so in doing so she she, she drifts over to him and uh, she says that if you want to have my love, you have to take my form. So he changes into a swan. And the story says that they fly from there to Brunabonia and they put the inhabitants of Brunabonia to sleep with their enchanted singing. They fly around the brew three times and then they fly into it. And presumably they live happily ever after. So the story might go. And I think that's, in essence, the story of the shaman or the one who has to go through this sort of initiation, right? Where in order to... Uh, live and prosper and rule f- fully and properly Angus Og as the keeper of the brew um, has to encounter this sickness within himself and has to undergo this shamanic experience and of course care takes the form of what you call a psychopomp which is a guide to the other world you know somebody who can change form and you know who who brings you on this uh, journey uh, into other realms and that that's the only way he can be cured. Now, I'm not sure if the story as we have it now is complete and in its original form, but it certainly has essences of that and that in essence what happens to Angus is that he undertakes or he undergoes a sort of a shamanic journey, you know, and that only the wounded physician heals. In other words, the uh, the person who wants to come back to their community and to be a healer or to be a leader of any sort um, and to have uh, integrity in that role has to have undergone a certain initiation or a certain suffering themselves, if that makes any sense. No, no, it, it does. I'm, I'm lost a little bit at the, the story of transforming into the, the swan. If you were to transform into a worm, say, mm. do, do you know the kind of way or, or, or something that was deemed to be a, a lowly creature, but trans- like swans are kind of maybe it's a modern thing but I presume our ancestors were the same kept in relatively high esteem because yeah. they are in, intrinsically graceful creatures 
So that, you know, there's no real darkness there. Or is the darkness that, you know, you, you were a man and now you're a, an animal? Or was he even a man? Sorry, was he a, a deity of sorts? Well, a deity, I suppose. We don't really know what the Dedanans were, in essence. Because, you know, some people, some scholars would, would, would draw attention to the fact that, you know, if you think about the Miletians arriving um, and the Dedanans going into the mounds, was it that the culture of the Neolithic, um, the people who built the monuments, that they were replaced by something that came in, uh, a new influx of people with different ideas and maybe different technology, including metal, because, you know, the Bronze Age came swiftly after the monuments were built. Um, so were the Dedanans representative of the people, the old people dying out, basically, and that sure all that was left of them was you know their spirits in the mounds you know yeah yeah so it's an interesting sort of thought i think you're right about the bird um the swan in particular yeah being held in esteem i think at the end of the story of the children of lear it is said that the milesians i think enlisted protection on they made a law preventing anybody from harming a swan from that time forth because of what the children of Lear, the suffering they had undergone in the form of swans for 900 years, you know. And the, the, the children of Lear and the salmon of knowledge and all the other different bits of mythology that we might have picked up as kids, say, is there continuity in these stories? Or are they a bit all over the place and not non-related? Or is that just the fragmented parts that we have left that we're still trying to kind of piece together? Well, I think you're right. I think more probably the latter we're still trying to piece together i mean i did draw attention earlier to the fact that you know the salmon of knowledge was given a name in one of the accounts and that name was finton and finton as finton mcborkra had transformed into a salmon to avoid drowning basically in the in the great flood you know um but i think there's a, a sort of a, a cosmology there in some of those stories that may be hard to grasp by the modern analytical mind and that is that uh, man uh, and w- w- man in general, I'm talking men and women, people, yeah. people, human beings have always, I think, throughout history identified to some extent with the animal and the natural world. We have a great affinity um, with um, creatures and with plants and trees, especially, you know, um, why would we transform into them? Well, um, I'm not exactly sure except for that there is a sort of an animal nature in man isn't there you know that beneath all of the sophisticated exterior and the ego and everything else you know we consider ourselves to be well I think we recognise within ourselves an animal nature well we, well, we are animals and yeah we, we do have a nature yeah so do we consider ourselves outside of the animal kingdom above the animal kingdom I don't know, in prehistory, did we consider ourselves just to be part of it? And did we have a sort of a mutual respect for various creatures? Like, creatures that you encounter in Irish mythology are diverse, but there's a lot of myths about bovines, cows and bulls, okay? That may well be tied into their value as commodities and money, you know, your your wealth for a long time in Ireland was calculated by how many cattle you owned. Of course, yeah. Or how much land you had to graze or to, to plant your your grains on, you know. So as a farmer, 
your cattle equals wealth. Uh, the swan is very significant in Irish myth. In fact, the ethna of that story I spoke about earlier on, the Altrum Chia Go Weather, um, she is described in that myth as a swan, which I think is curious. You know, um, uh, Cuchulain's mother, or Satanta's mother, comes to Newgrange uh, chasing swans from Awan Maka, and that is where uh, Lou comes to deck the pardon me, in, at, at Newgrange and tells her she's going to bear a son and his name will be Satanta and he later becomes Cucullan. So again, you have Newgrange at the centre of a, an important myth and you also have the swan. Other creatures, um, the salmon, um, the hawk, um, to a much lesser extent, um, you know, occasionally get cats, bees, dogs, but a huge amount of bovine mythology and then mythology pertaining to curious creatures that don't have a you know a um an obvious description so as like for instance the mata which was a, some sort of a, a great beast some sort of a a giant serpent or worm or monster or dragon or something like that and the oilfest which is a similar creature which might have been some sort of like a giant a giant worm or something like that. Pigs. Pigs are very common in Irish myth as well. And in fact the Dedanans are said to have been able to transform themselves into pigs. And indeed uh, Lou's father, Cian, uh, when he's being pursued by the sons of Turin at Moorhevna, which is modern day County Louth. That's the setting for that story. Transforms himself into a pig and tries to get lost in the swine herd. But the brothers transform into bloodhounds and sniff him out. Right. And they spear him as a pig, but he's wounded, but then he retains his animal form, or his human form, should I say, and then they kill him in human form. And Lou takes a great revenge upon them for this, the uh, the sorry story of the sons of um, Turin, uh, in which they're made to do many great and impossible feats, as it were, you know. They're punished very, very greatly for this uh, this murder of a god, by the way, because Cian was one of the Dedanans and uh, Lou, Lawfather, was his son. Um, so pigs are important. And also, at Newgrange, Dogda was said to have kept two pigs, one on the spit, cooking, and one alive, ready to be killed. And the story is that basically it didn't matter how many times you killed the live one, there was always still a live one left. In other words, there was an inexhaustible supply of food in whatever realm the Dedanans have entered, which is presumably some sort of a mortal or afterlife realm, you know, yeah. where you shall not thirst or go hungry, to borrow some biblical or Christian uh, terminology. We touched on the idea of Ireland being completely covered in forest the last time. I think you had a great line that a, what was it, a squirrel could go from Aaron Head to Mizzen Point without hitting the ground. Yeah, yeah. Malin Head, yeah, so, to Mizzen Head, yeah. Malin Head to Mizzen Without head, its feet ever touching the ground. So presumably that would have been a world of plenty. Say there would have been pigs, deer, like the, the hunting would have been good. I'm not sure about when deer were... were uh, I have to be careful here because this is where, I, where my, my own knowledge suffers. I know that cattle were introduced in the Neolithic. Um, the staple diet in the hunter-gatherer age, in the pre-Newgrange Mesolithic period, would have been fish largely so salmon eel trout from the rivers uh shellfish from the coasts um 
hazelnut was a big staple, um, readily available and very nutritious. In fact, one of the most nutritious foods. Uh, curiously, that's, that's how the salmon of knowledge was said to have been fed by the hazelnuts, you know, in the well of Segish, that there were nine magic hazel trees that grew over it and the nuts would drop into the well and the salmon would eat the nuts and get its knowledge. And so the nuts are associated with knowledge in the mythology and nutritionists will tell you the hazelnut is one of the most nutritious foods that you can eat. So if you're stuck for food and you can find hazelnuts, they're a very good source of nutrition for you. You know, so there's a physical nutrition, but also in the mythology, there's thought to have been some sort of a a, 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 a mental or magical nutrition that was going on as well, you know. Um, so whatever fruits and berries you could pick and whatever you could hunt, um, not sure about rabbits as well in that period. I just know I remember reading in The Origin of the Irish by uh, J.P. Mallory, who's associated with Queen's University, a very good book about not just the geographical origins and the mythical origins of the Irish, but also the genetic origins of the Irish people. Fascinating book. And I remember reading about the, the staples of the Mesolithic diet. And I, I was not astonished, but I was pleasantly surprised that the hazelnut and the salmon were both part of the staple Mesolithic diet. And here they were in this myth that apparently is a medieval myth about Finn catching or eating the salmon of knowledge by the Boyne. But, um, you know, the archaeologists will tell you that the people who came here um, and first lived in the Boyne when the monuments were being built, or even beforehand, for them, the salmon would have been a very good source of food at certain times of the year. Of know? course. And a practically an inexhaustible mm-hmm. source of food yeah. to their to their standard, obviously not now. Yeah, so before the medieval weirs were built... Were there some sort of um, earlier weirs made from some sort of uh, willow or wattle or f- of some kind? And we think that the answer is quite possibly yes, that you had to encourage the salmon to jump. They get tired from the jump and they rest in the pool behind the weir. That's the point of a weir is that it's a place where you, you can, you know, the salmon has to be forced to jump. And they will, and I've seen them. I mean, I presume you've, maybe you have. Maybe oh, no, I have. I'm a keen fisherman. So yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. But a lot of your listeners might never have seen salmon jumping weirs, and it's fascinating watching yeah. it. That's, that should be in, that should be a national pastime. To, is it, what, October, November time? Yeah, well, I remember seeing them down at Slane now, jumping the weir in, I think, late October, I think, as far as I can remember. It was definitely October. It might have been early October. It was sometime in October. And it's not that hard to predict within reason. I mean, I think, is it when the water is high? No, I think it's when the water is... I think when the water has been low continually for a week or two and then yeah. there's a sudden rise. Because they make a dash for it then. I think so, And yeah. there, are, there, are, there are three runs. According to, I learned this from reading a book about Newgrange by archaeologist Robert Hensey, there are three significant salmon runs in the year. Um, and I think there's a winter run that lasts from about, roughly speaking, Samhain through to Imbolc, which is basically from Halloween through to St. Bridget's Day covering the period of winter solstice. So that's interesting, you know, that there would have been salmon coming up the Boyne at a time when a lot of people were gathering at Newgrange to celebrate the winter solstice, you know. And then I think there's a spring run and I think there's a summer run. And one of them is to do with, is it yearlings, fish who are basically making their second return up the river. Right. Uh, I'm not sure what the terminology is. I can't remember offhand now. I was fascinated by that, you know, and the fact that we nearly wiped that out through intensive fishing 
Yeah, absolutely. That there was a ban on salmon fishing in the Boyne for a while, and now there's a strict catch and return policy. Now, I've spoken to a few anglers along the Boyne, and they maintain, look, it's not what the guys were doing along the river that was causing the problem. It was out at sea. It was the big industrial trawlers yeah, out at sea that were causing the problem, you know. Um, so uh, something that had been happening for thousands of years almost died out because of our bloody interference, you know. And the mythology um, suggests that the salmon is a creature that uh, has great knowledge and that that knowledge can be transferred to the, the eater of the salmon. The story being that, you know, the salmon has a speckled back yes. with the dots on it. Yes. And each dot, according to folklore, represents a, a hazelnut that the salmon has eaten. So okay. the more dots or speckles. The wiser uh, the salmon. Yeah, the wiser the salmon, you know. <laughs> Can you outlay the the story of the salmon of knowledge for people who are Yeah, well, it's, it? it's very simple and very brief. But basically, um, Finnegus, who's a druid, lives by the River Boyne. At Fiax Pool, which has been identified with one of the salmon weirs uh, at Rossnery, which is on the bend of the Boyne there. Um, sort of as you as the Boyne turns northward after it passes Newgrange, um, heading towards Nouth. And that uh, Finn, who's a boy, comes along, Finn McCool, whose name translates, I have this in Island of the Setting Sun, his name translates as... Uh, it could translate as starry son of the hazel which I think is interesting Mac Cool, the son of the hazel um, which is interesting given how the salmon is supposed to have been fed but the salmon according to one myth lives in in the well of Segish which is identified with Trinity Well in Carberry in County Kildare which is very very close to the actual source of the Boyne and is said to have been the mythical source of the Boyne the same well we spoke about with Bowen who approached the well against the wishes of Necton her husband and when you say well do you mean a pool or an actual it's a well I mean well well, a man-made you see yes there's a man-made structure there you know a stone line structure around it but was it originally just a natural spring? It probably was, you know. Of course. As a lot of wells have been sort of built into something that people can visit and, you know. And utilise, say. Yeah. The, the, the spring was always Put there. your bucket down or your ladle or whatever it is and, and get your water out of, you know. Um, so the salmon was supposed to swim in the well and be nourished from the nuts. And eventually somehow f- made, found its way down the river and Finnegus is fishing and catches the salmon of knowledge and Finn offers to help him cook it and he says to Finn you can cook it but don't eat it under strict orders you're not to eat it uh, but what happens is as he's cooking it the, the skin of the fish blisters it comes up in a big blister and Finn presses down on the blister with his thumb and burns his thumb and immediately puts his thumb in his mouth and thereby gains all the knowledge of the salmon of knowledge. And I think, according to my own memory of it, Phoenix tells him that he can eat the salmon because it's no use to him anymore. And he um, realises the significance of what's happened, that the boy was fated or destined to get the salmon and it wasn't for Phoenix himself. And Phoenix, being a wise druid, probably had enough wisdom of his own anyway. Somebody's pointed out, and I think it's quite lovely, the idea of the boy sucking his thumb. You know, that's an image of real innocence, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like you see children of a very young age, toddlers, sucking their thumb, you know. Yeah, and if if you were to see an adult do it, it would be extremely childish. You would think so, you know. For an adult to suck their thumb is a very unusual thing, you know. 
but the image thereby presented is of basically the initiate, you know, the one who is going to come to all the knowledge, um, having been associated with Finnegus, who is obviously the wise elder of the community, the, the, the druid and the seer and probably the poet, you know, um, the one who has all of the mythical knowledge. And it's not, uh, I suppose, with or without the salmon, his encounter with such a being would have brought him great wisdom anyway. But the story is a metaphor for the transformation of the child. That delineation that happens in initiatory rites or in circumstances that sometimes happen in people's lives whereby a child suddenly becomes an adult, you know, through various happenings or eventualities or means. Sometimes kids have to grow up very quickly because maybe their father leaves them, mother or there's a, a domestic abuse going on or one of the parents dies or there's a tragedy or something and, you know, the child has to grow up very, very quickly. Well, I, I can relate to that. Like, my, my dad died when we would have been all quite young. So there's, there's absolutely a, not a... You grow up fast, yeah. basically, you know, and the same can be said if, let's say, your 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 parents divorce, maybe, or if there's some sort of upheaval in yeah. your life as a yeah. child, it doesn't it doesn't have to be a death, say, you know, if if there's sickness in your house, or maybe if maybe a sig a sibling um, is involved in an accident and becomes disabled or is born disabled or, or whatever, but yeah. there really is a, a transformative element to to such happenings as yeah, a, as a and child. in the case, for instance, where. The father dies, the boy, uh, in some cases, has to become a man very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and has to take on, or doesn't have to, but maybe just feels that they have to. The burden of responsibility is that the father is no longer here, so I have to become the father. Um, And I think that that transformation, you see, the thing we want in modern times, we want quick wisdom. Yeah, we, we have, haven't we? Characters. We spoke about this the last yeah. time. You know, the soundbite and the tweet and the selfie have become symbols of our shallowness in that regard. So I spoke last time about my own journey through depression and anxiety. Um, that I feel that in my own way, I had a shamanistic journey, a shaman's journey, away from my community when I was very depressed and away. I was only a shadow of myself, you know, but that that experience enriched me. And, you know, that I have become a much bigger man and a much greater human because of that suffering. And I think today we want just to catch that salmon. So what is the salmon for people today? Let's explore that for a second, because I think that's very interesting. I know a lot of people who are desperate to win the lottery. Yeah, very much so. And I'm so. sure you do, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will. I, people, I would have been one of those people yeah, at one stage. They're doing it every week, and they're like, damn, and every time they check the results, there's nothing, or they only won a fiver or whatever. And they think that this catch, if only this salmon of knowledge will land for me, it's going to transform my life, and I'm going to be happy. Now, there was a documentary only in the last two weeks that I didn't see, but I can, I, I can only comment on it based on what I've seen online about it about Irish lottery winners and the majority of them said that they either ended up no more happy than they were before or less happy than they had been before they won. Yeah, that should spark something in people to say let's stop, you know, 
codding ourselves here. No, absolutely. And again, I don't know where to where to credit this from or what the source is, but maybe you've heard it yourself because it's kind of it's been out there for a long time. You're going to butcher another quote here. I right? am, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Go yeah. on, butcher away. Uh, I'll help you to get my biggest <laughs> fucking knife here. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, the, the idea is that I think the lottery winners have been studied essentially, and a year later they're less happy than amputees are. So people who've you know lost limbs who you might, th- let's say, lost both their legs, say, you would imagine that that person would be infinitely less happy than somebody who at the same time won the lottery. But that's not necessarily so. Mm. And in the same way that you had your own kind of dark night of the soul, as as did I did, as did I do, as I did, we lost a part of ourselves, I think, maybe. Not a physical part like some people lose, obviously. But we, you, 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 you burn off certain elements of yourself. I, go, I, I lost this. I lost my sense of self. Essentially, I, I was in a nice big flash car. I was earning big money. I had a company credit card. You know, uh, more money than I could spend. I remember looking back and calculating that I was spending at one point two hundred euro a month on coffee and filling stations. That's what I was two hundred euro a month on wow. just cups of coffee, and that was that was nothing too insane. That was you know three or four cups of coffee a day. Yeah, but they were two or three euro a piece, and over the course of a month, mm. that's what you're talking at, at least like. Yeah, and I built up this. I I I achieved this quite young as well. So I would have been only oh I don't know uh, twenty two or three and I was in a brand new car and I had you know the credit card and wearing the suit to work and the you know the, you the whole lot like, you were oh, the yes, symbol sir. of success yes this, that, that's you were it. the man everybody wanted to be that's it absolutely and how did you feel before was, you had your crash obviously how did you think looking back now how do you feel how do you think you felt then at, at the time I at the time I felt great mm. I did at the time, I felt great. But now, but looking, looking back, back and it, was, I was, it was so vacuous. Yeah, it was yeah. so superficial, so meaningless. There was nothing there. And then you take away the take away the car, take away the phone, take away the wage, and like I, I've spoken about this on the podcast. I was suicidal. I said goodbye to family and friends, um, people that I just I I knew at that moment in time I wouldn't see them. And in my in my own head, I said, you know, I I left people basically saying. That's that's that. Won't yeah. see them again. Um, had a plan the whole lot, but uh, so I went from being on top of the world, in, you know, in inverted commas, being on top yeah. of the world, being being the guy that the guy that everyone wanted to be. You know, twenty, you know, in his early twenties with a flash car and you know the suit and the whole lot, and that the ego was fully inflated. And once that went, I lost my sense of self essentially, and that resulted in me being suicidal basically and i think maybe that collectively we all underwent a little bit of that when the like the rug was pulled from under the majority of us maybe not to the same extent as as me or anyone who was in the construction industry which i think got hit harder than, oh, yeah. than most maybe but i think we lost a we lost something of ourselves and i think we've come through that now maybe and our are possibly the better for it. Well, I think people who worked in construction were earning a lot of money in the boom, and then suddenly were earning nothing. So it was a big fall. That was me. Whereas in the people in the public service and in the civil service and in private industry were finding that their 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 expenses were being cut, their wages were being cut, but they still had something. Yes. Whereas a lot of people in construction just went from boom to bust overnight. 
So that's very interesting that you should share all that. And I now feel like I'm the one asking the questions and you're in the hot seat. <laughs> so that's an interesting role reversal that's just taken place there. No, but genuinely, I find, you know what I'm finding very interesting about what we've just been through? We were talking about the shaman and we were talking about the initiatory rite. We were talking about basically the, the point that my friend Laura Murphy calls the Satanta point, where Satanta is faced with this great challenge of the the hound of Cullen, the smith of the king, his hound, giant hound, is bounding towards the boy. And he's going to get ripped apart by this hound. It's going to destroy him. And he has only one option, as far as he's concerned, and that is the only thing he knows how to do is to use a hurl and a schlitter. And he throws the schlitter up and he hurls it and it enters enters the dog's mouth in through its body and drags its insides out through its rear end and he kills the hound. At that point, the the smith, Cullen, is inconsolable. He says, my hound is dead, what am I going to do? And Satanta says, I will become your hound. That's how he gets the name Ku Cullen, the hound of Cullen. And Laura calls this a Satanta point, which is a point that we reach in life, whether we reach it through the initiatory rites of a traditional community or we reach it through crisis where the boy has to become a man. So if I can just analyse for a second what you just told me, and you've just shared something that's very personal and very brave of you to share it. Um, I was never suicidal. I was very badly depressed, but I was never suicidal. I knew I would never take my own life. Um, So you are the symbol of the boy living as a man. With the flash car and drinking the coffees and living the high life, probably, you yeah, know? Yeah, absolutely. To me, mythically, that is the image of the boy that hasn't yet been initiated and hasn't grown up. Absolutely. Now, your experience was very dramatic and profound. Uh, but like we said the last time, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. So in essence, you've undergone that initiation, but you it hasn't been an initiation through choice or through it's not something you would have thought of. I think in order to grow up, I I need I need there to be an economic collapse to bring me to my senses (laughs) and for me to become suicidal to then grow from that experience. But in essence, that's what's happened. And look at what you're doing now. What you're doing now is you're trying to serve your community with this podcast because I know I've listened to you, what you told me about it personally, what we've spoken about on air and then listening to other podcasts. You have a desire now to help people and help society. So in essence, your experience has helped you to grow as a human being. You've grown up very significantly from all of that. And you would never be able to become the boy again. That's the point about the Satanta point and the Salmon of Knowledge point. You can't go back. It's not something you can go back to. It is like after the hobbits make that perilous journey into Mordor. They can never go back to uh, Hobbiton and the Shire and have the same innocent existence they had previously. They've been initiated into something, uh, into a role role of a much, I wouldn't call it severe, but, you know, a much greater and elevated and... Uh, a role full of responsibility, but which they appear to grasp almost enthusiastically, you know? Yeah, yeah. So in going to the brink and in staring into the abyss, uh, you've come back. Uh, to me, that is mythical. 
that is the essence of some of these great myths. And uh, the hero, uh, you know, I, I I couldn't agree with you're a hero for yourself. You know, you've made a heroic journey. You have, you've you've faced all of your darknesses to the point of suicide, to the point of ending it all, and you've come back from that. I don't think anybody could be stronger than the person who's come back from that sort of experience. Well, I I wonder, I wonder, would that experience been not easier, but like I I don't think anybody should have to go to those kind of depths. No, you don't know? have to. But that's the but is that the, but is that the idea of the initiation? Yeah, that you 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 don't get pushed quite that far. But, you know, let's say, I don't know, three quarters of the way there, say. So that when you do have an economic collapse and you do lose your sense of self, that you don't end up so far down that dark road. Correct. Is, is that why you know, the suicide rates are off the charts these days? Because we don't have that initiation. We don't have well, that mythology. I th- yeah, I think I think that's part of it. Of, of course. course there's l- no look, a lot of people are going to be listening to this and they're going to be, they're going to be agreeing with some of what we say and they're going to be disagreeing. That's fine. That's what we're here to do, to provoke debate, isn't it? Absolutely. But in essence, I think you're right. We spoke last time about the fact that we lack a mythical grounding as a people and as a society. And and I said last time a lot of people would find that idea ridiculous and even nauseating. So why, why would we be grounded in our myths? The thing about the traditional culture and the traditional role of a druid or a priest or a shaman was precisely that, was to was to ground you, was to was to was to help you as a human to understand uh, and to realise that, you know, as I said, life isn't going to be all rosy. And it's not about making life seem it's going to be a constant challenge either. But I think if you're mythically grounded and you're grounded in a sort of a community where there are uh, these initiatory rights, you're less likely to meet that crisis and to not be able to deal with it. I think that's the point. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because you're, you're going to meet crisis. It's coming. Yeah. But to be prepared for it, yeah. So what, what, what is um, to take some Irish examples? What is the voyage of Bran, for instance? You know, what is, um, when you know, in which he visits all these magical islands and encounters all sorts of weird, wonderful creatures. You know, what is the slaying of the Mata in the Boyne by the men of Ireland at? Lech Ben at Bruna Bonia, you know, what is that about? I'm sorry, remind me what the, the Mata was again. Well, the Mata was this monster that was dismembered, uh, that had licked up the Boyne, you know, the big beast, this almost like a dragon-like, serpent-like thing, and it was killed. Well, what is that except for that, that meeting of these great life forces that we encounter and being able to meet them? the slaying of the dragon, as it were, or the pulling of the sword from the stone, the Arthurian myth, which is reflected in the Irish uh, folk tale uh, relating to the sleeping armies. Like, for instance, there's a story at Rossneree, which is in my new book, Mythical Ireland, and there's a story at Garrett's Fort near RD, which is in Ireland of the Setting Sun, which talks about a cave beneath a ring fort where a man goes in to enter and he sees a a sword in the wall and he pulls the sword from the wall and as he does, this phantom army rouses from their sleep. 
and he basically hasn't got the courage to pull the sword completely from the wall and flees from the place and they shout after him that he's a coward you know the idea is that you're rousing this sleeping army we encounter this in lord of the rings where aragorn walks the paths of the dead and it's beautifully done in the movie where he wields the sword against the dead army and he actually um he it's not that he overpowers them he takes them under his command and he uses them then in the battle of the pelinor fields and that is a mythical image of us being brave enough to overcome that fear and that is something that i'm so referring back to something i said earlier in the interview i spoke about how myth the meaning of a myth can percolate without you necessarily coming to a a substantial conscious realization of its meaning Yes. So in other words, it's percolating. Something clicks with you subconsciously or unconsciously where you recognise somewhere deep within you, you recognise that this is a metaphor for, you know, this encounter that might happen to me in my life, etc., etc. The person who allegedly enters the cave, Campbell, Joseph Campbell, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Is widely attributed to Joseph Campbell. Now, I went in search of that quote from my book, Mythical Ireland, and I can't find it in his written works, but it, it it ties in very closely with things that he did say, and he is likely to have said it probably in an interview. The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. So the, the idea of Gareth's fort is that the guy is going in to pull the sword from the wall, like Arthur pulling Excalibur from the stone, except for the guy pulls it out so far, and this phantom army becomes awakened in the darkness. And he flees in terror from this. That is the idea, I think, the universal um, notion of confronting uh, your fears and those things with which you think you would flee from, but which you may have to actually confront fully and immersively in your human existence. There's an element of... Um, purposefully heading towards the cave in search of the dragon as well as opposed to waiting for the dragon to come to you isn't there yeah yes yeah and um, what is the cave well the cave to me is a metaphor for darkness and what is darkness represent well some people say bad or evil or whatever but that shadow nature of yourself so what are you fearing to confront is something within your own nature that you haven't recognized and if you haven't recognised that it's there, what happens is you end up projecting it onto others. Which, by the way, is one of the sicknesses that um, plagues modern Western society. So I'll give you an example of that, just so your listeners can keep up with me if, if they're finding difficulty with it. In the United States of America right now, the the darkness of the European white man. We're mostly talking about European settlers in the States. White Europeans. People who can trace their ancestry back to Europe. Whether it be Ireland or Italy or Germany or wherever. Yeah. Uh, unable to confront that shadow within themselves. Have projected it onto minorities. And people of different skin colour. And people of different religi- religious beliefs. 
So the Muslim community, for instance, is having a hard time. I think they're having a hard time in parts of Europe, obviously. But we're just talking about the States for now because I want to talk about the symbol of this. The symbol is the one thing. So in everything that's happened in America over the past few years, all of the, over the last number of years, all of the major sort of attacks and um, shootings, mass shootings, etc. The one that... Uh, instantly um, provokes a reaction towards minorities is when a Muslim terrorist is involved. But the one that provokes the least reaction from the establishment is the white man with the gun. Yeah, very much so. And the white man with the gun, the reason for that is because that is the projection of the darkness that is within the white man. The, the projected image is the white man with the gun is something that we cannot recognise it in ourselves. So therefore we can't deal with it and we won't deal with it. So where shootings have been carried out by by white males, Las Vegas for instance, there's almost a denial. It's no, um, we haven't got all the facts, etc, etc. But if it's a Muslim who does something in New York, maybe drives a truck into a crowd or shoots some people or whatever there's an immediate rush to judgment and there's an immediate close the borders and build the walls and stop planes coming from these muslim nations yeah when it's a when it's a a, a white american it's it sparks the the gun control debate but when it's a a brown muslim say it's the close the borders you know kick out the illegals debate yeah well i think that's it so the the one image that America cannot and won't deal with is the image of the white man with the gun. It is the one that provokes an almost blank reaction from the establishment. Thoughts and prayers. And you've seen all the memes I'm sure on social media about how useless thoughts and prayers are in this whole thing and that we're just going to see tragedy after tragedy after tragedy until the white American man recognises within his own shadow that murderous figure with the gun and realises that that is something that is within me and when I realise that then I can do something about it that we're all capable of it but in the meantime the only people who are causing problems are the Muslims and the Mexicans and the other African people of African American origin etc etc the minorities and the ones who have trouble sticking up for themselves because they encounter this prejudice and that prejudice stems from you know, okay, we're going into psychology here rather than mythology. But I just think that it's fascinating that the white man with the gun is the one th- symbol of almost everything that is wrong with America right now. But it is the one symbol that America can't and won't confront because there's a recognition there on a very deep subconscious or unconscious level that that is me. <laughs> No, absolutely, and there's a guy I've mentioned a couple of times in the podcast that I'd be a big fan of. I'd be surprised if you're not familiar with him, Jordan Peterson. I don't know, are you familiar with him at I've all? heard the name. Yeah, you should definitely go down a Jordan Peterson-shaped rabbit hole, but he speaks a lot of um, how the the Nazis were, weren't were these evil race of people. They were people just like me and you. And... Uh, that that evilness is is within us all, and that you have to confront that and be aware of that 
in order to, I suppose, understand yourself. Yeah. And and in Nazi Germany, they projected all of the badness onto the Jews. Yes, the, the other. The Jews were responsible for everything that was wrong. And all of those things persist to these days. The, the amount of um, propaganda that you encounter online about the Jews, the Jews running American, running the Western world and... You controlling know, banking and, and all oh, this shit. You know, all that <laughs> paranoid stuff. It's like, you know, well, they're doing well for a, a race and a nation of people that were nearly wiped off the face of the planet, you know. Literally, yeah. What do we do? Okay, it's not for us to do it. I'm worried, and the reason I'm worried, as I said in the last interview, is because I think I see shades of all of those mass psychoses that have happened in the past, like Nazi Germany, in what's happening in America right now. And I worry because this isn't something that's just happening over there. Because if something major happens there, it can affect the whole world economy. And our economy is founded on foundations of sand, really, you know, when you think about it. Oh, very much so. Like, if we encountered the modern equivalent of the Wall Street crash of, was it the 1930s? Um, I think that's the sort of thing that could bring us to some sort of great uh, destructive human event. I think, likewise, a terrorist attack on a large enough scale on an American city could bring us to a similar situation. Because what's going to happen is there's just going to be a lash out of anger. Because there's... What people don't realise is that this symbol of the white man with the gun is actually a symbol of anger um, that stems up from the deepest part of our own resentment. But it's not actually derived entirely from our resentment of other people of other races and skin colour. It's actually just mostly derived from our um, abhorrence of our own dark nature. Absolutely, and and again, this this idea of the other, we can we can see it in those. And again, another biblical quote that I, I might get there thereabouts right. We can we can see the splinter in someone else's eye, but not oh, the yeah. plank in our own. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think racism really exists. It's because you can spot them in a crowd that they really are the other because you there you can make a difference, and you see that in nature. Like there's a there's a common misconception that let's say lions target. The weak and the elderly, and the, they not the, target the the fattest people with the most meat on them. No, they, they don't. Do you, do you know what? Do you know what uh, animal predators like uh, the big cats? Do you know what they look for? Um, something that's identifiable, something they can pick out. So they they go for the guy with the limp. Not because they're easier to catch, but because they can navigate their hunt around yeah, this one thing. I mean, that makes a certain amount of sense. And yeah. I think it was, it might have been, I don't know if it was Robert Sapolsky discovered this, but I think, let's say some scientists, it might not have been Sapolsky, but some scientists I think was was studying zebras properly for the first time. I think it could have been Sapolsky, he's a, beha- a behavioural psychologist, or behavioural scientist. And what he noticed was, he'd be sitting out in the savannah, and he'd be taking notes on this herd of zebras. And he looked down at his notebook and take notes and look up, back up and go, fuck, which zebra was I looking at? <laughs> so he put a, a dab of uh, dye on, on the zebra's haunch. And what happened? The lions immediately murdered all the ones that were marked <laughs> because they could identify them. Okay, yeah, yeah. And if you look, and we're animals, we're predators, we're, so we're group you... hunters. So if we can differentiate somebody 
by a, an identifiable thing, like the color of their skin, say, or their, you know, their, their curly hair or their yeah, flatter yeah. nose or, or whatever it mm-hmm. is. Uh, it just makes it that bit easier to kind of demonize them. Yeah. Yes. In some way that mar- marks them out from us, that they're different. That they're different. Yeah, yeah, well, of course. Well, that's it. That's the basis of all racism, really, isn't it? You know, and all xenophobia. Of course. Is that people are different in some way. With the Jews, it was just that they believed themselves to be a, a separate, religiously blessed group of people. And that blessing turned out to be largely a curse for them in some, to some degree. Um I don't want to turn this into a facile debate because I don't want people to think that I'm um, just throwing out uh, uh, sound bites. Yeah, that's from Matthew, I think. Um, Why dost thou behold the mote that is in thine brother's eye when there is a plank in thine own eye? First, you know, remove the plank from your eye and then point out the minor flaw in your brother's eye. You yes. Know? Judge not that thou be not judged. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. That, to me, should be the central message of Christian religion. But it is, but not in, to, not in, to, in the case, uh, not in the circumstance that I meant it. In other words, um, uh, what's been clearly intimated is that you should, shouldn't look for faults in others you should see your faults in you first yes. which is a central message of the whole Jungian thing of looking at your shadow Christianity turned that into sin so there's original sin so even if you've never committed a crime in your life or you've never broken one of the commandments you have something called original sin that you're born with so you are a flawed human being in the Christian uh, analysis Yes, from from day one but the problem is that Christianity just wants you to repent for that and to constantly try and... It, it wants you to focus on that all the time. Whereas Jung wants you to see, I think, now this is from my reading of it, and I'm no Jung expert, Jung wants you to understand that that's there within you, but that it is not an essential essence of who you are. That you cannot banish it completely, but nor should you deny it. Yes, And actually denial is the greatest... Uh, sin of a human uh, because to deny your own dark nature is to go down this I think neurotic and psychotic path towards xenophobia and towards harming other people because you refuse to recognise that there might be something in your own nature that causes you to do that Um, judge not that thou be not judged so you shouldn't judge others You, you need to look inwards first but yet, doesn't the whole, for me, anyway, look, I, I have to be careful again. I don't want we didn't come back here to uh, start bashing religion again. <laughs> but just to say that for me, Christianity hinges around the idea of judgment. You have, and somebody said to me once, no, it's not about judgment, it's about forgiveness. And I said, but sure, you have to judge somebody to have done something wrong before you can forgive them. So what are you forgiving them for them if you, you haven't, haven't judged, judged them of them. doing something? Of course. And the f- most fearsome symbol of judgment is this fiery hell that is threatened with us. You know, oh, yea, the, the wicked shall burn as the stubble, according to the book of, um, not Daniel, uh, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And the wicked shall burn as the stubble. You know, and almost celebrating the idea that that people who are deemed to be bad will suffer and suffer greatly. Um, 
well, what if that suffering isn't so much the suffering of a calamity brought on by your fellow humans, but your own suffering that brings you to realization of God, whatever that God may mean to you. I'm not talking about the fearsome God of the Old Testament. I'm just talking about that God nature that you, your own experience brings you closer to. Um, I would much prefer to identify with the stories of shamanic journeying from the ancient myths than to identify with a lot of what is in the Bible because I read a lot of it and I studied it in desperation to try and cling on to it and I realised that it was never going to serve me because I think organised religion in general serves those who lead it. Yes, of course. Much more so than the people who they claim to be shepherding to some great afterlife existence, you know. And that's a cynical way of looking at it. I know it is, and I, I apologise for that, but that's just... But the one thing I didn't do was to turn to atheism as a as a, as a a resort to that. But your own story just brought all that to mind, that, you know, sometimes the suffering is something that you encounter totally unexpectedly. It is not of your own making. Circumstances overtake you. Something happens to you in your life that changes things drastically. And permanently. And as I said, you reach the Satanta point and after which there is no going back because you've gone beyond losing your innocence. You yeah, there's a transformation there. You are now something entirely different. Yeah. But hopefully something that has grown. Oh, something, something better. Something bigger absolutely. and better and more wholesome and more human. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you've cried out in the darkness and your voice has been heard, even if it's only by yourself. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And in Irish mythology, just you mentioned there the, the the idea of kind of heaven and hell in in Christianity. Say, was there an equivalent heaven and hell in in Irish mythology? I'm trying to think about an idea of hell. I'm scrambling in my head while you're asking me that. But, the, but because there are many way. heavens. Okay. There are many very pleasant lands and realms and places. So, for instance, Mananon's home is is Owen Ablock which some historians try to identify with one of the islands off Scotland because Alba is Scotland, you know. But it's actually an imaginary place. The land of promise, Tir Tarngre, Tir the land of the living or the ever-living, Tir the land of the youth, you know. Um, I mean, the she itself, to me, is representative of uh, 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 an entrance to eternity, you know. And that's what it really represents to me at its fundamental level. So any of the mounds that are around the country, up to and including Newgrange and Houghton, Doughton, etc., they're all portals, essentially, to the to the afterlife or to yeah. but I think dimension. The, I think or, even beyond that, the, uh, the idea or the fundamental notion of a she is the ability to transfer or to uh, transmute or to transport between realms. If you understand. In other words, isn't it entirely possible um, for us um, as meditative human beings to enter um, a state of nirvana or bliss in our own existences on occasion just by doing a simple thing like maybe sitting and meditating? Or, as I said to you last time, you know, I find sometimes I enter eternity on, on a thought. You know, just being close to nature or being by the river or hearing the 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 sound of the waves crashing into the shore or being on some hilltop or mountaintop and feeling that you've been elevated from ordinary human existence into some 
you know, super ordinary plane or some, you know, overarching divine realm or something. I don't know. It's, these are the nuministic experiences that I spoke about earlier that we seek as part of our mythical and religious life, our spiritual existence that are there for us to experience. But it's not necessarily the traditional uh, image of happy people sitting on thrones with fountains around them, you know, and fluffy clouds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that is almost like a stereotypical image, you know. It's not the stereotypical image. It's the idea of, well, can you enter your own heavenly state, you know, just by entering a particular um, meditative or trance state yourself? Okay, some people take um, some sort of a drug or a hallucinogen and other people smoke weed and, you know, some people get drunk and then they think they're happy. But I think, you know, I'm talking about sort of like a genuine experience of and I think I've experienced that you know and I think I've been more inclined to experience it following my suffering that I've been able to experience these divine moments where I feel like where I feel like I could possibly live forever stuff stuff that I've actually written about you know you could enter heaven on the basis of a tiny little thought that for instance I am an eternal uh, an eternal being I'll never live on I'll never live a, you know, I'll, I'll never live the same life again, but I'll never die fully. Or when you open your mind to the possibilities, um, and you suddenly become a Fenton MacBorkra. Have you yourself a concretized version of that? Do you do you believe in an afterlife, say as such, or? I'm, I'm sorry, before you actually forget the whole mythology that you've been. I don't know if infatuated is the right word, but that you this this rabbit hole that you've gone down is that. It strikes me as being a very spiritual journey for you personally. Oh, yeah. Obviously, says you. <laughs> well, you see, the whole discussion really for tonight has kind of... Well, we, we wanted to talk about mythology because you, you said that we didn't really talk about much mythology the last time. Yes. Uh, we talked a lot of ologies. Um, but, you know, I think it should be obvious from my work. Now, fair enough, you haven't maybe read my work but it should be obvious that yes mythology has been a spiritual experience for me it's impossible for me to see it from the mindset of um an analytical and atheistic perspective to me immersion in mythology is itself a nuministic or a transcendent experience yeah you, you lose all the nuance when you try and set it down to dates and timelines and yeah. all the rest no look some of it is head melting trying to work out what some of it means is head melting so you have to leave it I find intuitively now much more so than even 10 years ago when I read a myth I find the meaning of it percolating or coming to the fore very quickly for me compared to years ago when I'd read a myth and I wouldn't have a clue what it meant yeah you know I think you just kind of get in tune with that intuitive side of your nature which I think I've always had anyway so my first experience of numinism as it were the idea of maybe transcending human life and entering some sort of a divine state 
was as a child looking at the dark skies when we were brought to Mayo. And I remember we stayed in a house out by, I think, Loch Cora, which is incidentally where St. Patrick tossed this serpent uh, from uh, Croke Patrick. And that could be a remnant of a some sort of an origin myth. But I remember walking out into the garden that night and I had never seen so many stars because I'd been grown up in Drogheda where the streetlights were always a hindrance to seeing the, oh, of course, the Milky yeah. Way and the stars as they were. And out in the west and out in parts of Connemara and, and down in the Ring of Kerry and in different parts of Ireland, you get to see the stars as your ancients saw them in all their magnificent glory. And I remember after that coming back to Drogheda and occasionally staying out at night with friends and looking up at the stars and telling them about the constellations and some of the stories relating to the constellations and just feeling that I, in doing that, was reliving countless lives. An intuitive feeling that I was just doing something that ancestors had done time and again for aeons of time into the past. And that made me feel magnificent. I'd say so. Yeah, it did. And so that was my first proper transcendent experience. Much more so than anything I encountered going to church. Going to Mass. Mass never made sense to me. It never made sense why you would sit in an uncomfortable chair mumbling prayers repeatedly and, you know, and all this stuff that was going on in the altar cracking of bread and drinking of wine. Well, listen, you're, you're preaching to the converted. No, here. and look, we're not going down that ra- I know we're not opening up that can of worms, but much more so than that, the magical experience where, for me, some of the ma- most wonderful experiences of my life have been the simplest. Yeah, watching the stars was one of them. So, from a young age, I was interested in the science of astronomy. A lot of people used to say, you're an astrologer, aren't you? I said, no, I'm an astronomer. What's the difference? Well, an astrologer tells you that you're going to you know, encounter a new love this week because the moon is in Pisces. Yes. I'm telling you that I'm interested in the fact that we're 93 million miles from the sun and that the nearest star is four light years away. What does that mean? Light year is a measure of distance, not time. The light from that star left it four years ago. See that, the Andromeda galaxy up there? See that faint patch of light? Well, that's 2.2 million light years away. Do you know what that means? What you're seeing now is 2.2 million years old. We were gorillas when that light left that. Mind-blowing, factual stuff. But at the back of it, an intuitive, overwhelming, awesome feeling of connectivity with my cosmos, with a feeling of oneness and a feeling of connection with history and ancestors and a, a real uplifting thing that you can't even explain what's going on in you, except for that you just feel tremendously uplifted by the experience of just watching those stars. Yeah, it's kind of a oneness with the with the universe, really, isn't it's, it? It's tremendous. That's what I'm talking about, that experience of heaven that people bypass because they, they're so busy looking for, you know, that salmon of knowledge that we call the lottery win they land the salmon and they cook the salmon and they eat it everything will be right no because you have to come to the experience of the divine and the eternal um, not through necessarily uh, means of your own design so you can plan and plot all you want for the ideal life the ideal life begins when you live mythically as Joseph Campbell would have said, follow your follow your bliss. 
which is what he maintained a lot of mythology was about the hero of a thousand faces and the hero's journey was all about you uh, not just confronting your shadow in the Jungian analysis but you following your path and your path being one that would bring you happiness fulfillment doing what you are created to do so every human has a call a calling but your greatest aim and goal in life according to Campbell is to find out what that is and live that life and then you'll enter heaven yeah your own personal heaven yeah that's not to say you won't encounter difficulties and tragedy in your life of course you have to be prepared for that well, well they're kind of guarantees though aren't they yeah. because if you if you, you can't if escape you, that if you haven't been sick your wife or son or daughter or mother they're going to get sick and if you know if you haven't if you haven't had a death in your family you know that's coming <laughs> do you know that kind of way like and if you if you yeah. haven't had your if you haven't had your existence rocked watch out because mm. that's coming too you know yeah but a, a great deal of people, and I. this is one of the things I really love about Joseph Campbell, was because he was such an academic. He, um, in the aforementioned Great Depression, he went off and spent five years locked in a shed reading, reading about mythology from all around the world, and became hugely knowledgeable. Um, but despite the fact that he was an academic, and he was a university professor, first and foremost, he was a teacher, a philosopher, and kind of like a druid you know in a way Campbell was um, he, he he was able to as I said the last time I think translate the language of Jung which appeared to be a little bit sort of aloof and um, complex um, into sort of more easily digestible and ready to understand um, you know ideas but at the core of Campbell's work was the idea of following your bliss so, I would speculate that your bliss probably, you know, what what are you doing in your spare time, you know, to that, that makes you happy and you're not actually making any money from it. You're doing the Off The Lead podcast. Yes. To me, that I would probably see that as something that you, if you were doing it as a, a vocation or a profession, would bring you great happiness. Oh, absolutely. So that you, you would never feel like you're working. Yeah. Oh no. Did, did, none of this ever feels like work. Ever. So I've I've invested twenty years of my life into the Mythical Ireland project, and I'm still working a day job as a graphic designer and a sub editor in a newspaper. I I just haven't broken through yet, you know. Yet being the operative word. Oh, of course, and I f- fully intend to. If if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. But all I know is I'm following my passions. I'm following yes. those things that make me feel most alive as a human being. And they are what makes me want to keep going. And they are what gives me hope. Because um, I think if you're deprived of that goal or that existence, then you're just living a sort of a shadow existence or a shell existence, you know. You're just the shell of what you should be. And that is, along with Jung's wish for people to acknowledge the existence of their shadow, is Campbell's wish for people to follow their bliss. And that's all mythically grounded. Campbell's whole life's work was about um, trying to bring people to the realisation that myth performs extremely important functions. 
No, absolutely. And you mentioned that Campbell spent many years learning not about just his own native mythology. He was, what, English, Campbell? American. American. So, okay, so there wasn't really an American mythology, say. But have you spent much time looking into the, you know, the Aztec mythology and, you know, the mythology from around the world, or is it all been Irish? Not so much. That is sometimes a source of regret to me where I'm not able to do the comparative stuff. You know, because comparative mythology is very important. Um, I think it's hampered me in some respects, but I think it's also helped me in others. Yes. So you can dissolve or um, resolve, should I say. Resolve is a better word. Dissolve, not dissolve, resolve. Um, some of the meanings of, of, of an indigenous Irish myth um, through, you know, your own study of the monuments and the landscape and the mythology and some of the history of the island, etc., etc. However, you cannot resolve all of it without doing the comparative work. Now, I've done a limited amount of that. But you see, the thing is, because it's only a hobby per se, yet, it will be a profession soon. Just to state that. Follow my bliss. Um, <laughs> because it's only, I'm trying to fit it all in. Of course, yeah, around there's only so many else. hours in the day. Correct. So Irish mythology is so vast that to try and fit in world mythology as well, <laughs> you'd need a few lifetimes, you know. Of you really would. Yeah. You know? So But what I'd love to see is you sit down with your I don't know, Dutch counterpart or New Zealand counterpart and oh, basically yeah. hash it out. Do you know that kind well, of do you know where I'd like, like to start? Yeah, where Spain. would it be? Really? Yeah, because of the Malaysians. Of course. You know, because we've got sort of a common interest there you know yeah, I just think it'd be a good starting point you know and is there a Spanish equivalent to yourself that you're aware of I believe there is but I haven't done a huge amount of investigation about it that the story of the Milesian departure from Spain is there in Spain you know so I'm just interested in following those threads um, down the line if I get the chance you know but there's no one Spanish guy that you can name who's who has no. you know Mythical Spain. No, no, there isn't. Yeah, no, that's actually a very good question. No, there isn't. Not to my knowledge. I mean, there's probably somebody there, all right. Well, Graham Hancock would be the English version of you. Would you? Would you? Like, well, are that's you the very Irish complimentary ver- of you. If I if I thought I was at that level, I tell you. Well, put it this way: even without you, let's say, let's say for argument's sake, you're not at that. Me. <laughs> well, let's say for argument's sake, you're not at the same level as as Graham Hancock, which I'm not. Yeah. Okay, but are you still? The Irish Graham Hancock. Ah, uh, no, look, yeah, it's very hard. And, I, and I, 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 I will never be de- the determinant of that. Other people will decide what I am. I'm just doing what I do. Yes, I'm not of trying to no, do. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah, so it's not for me to determine whether I am or I'm not. Some people think Hancock is, as we said the last time. Some some people don't like him, and some people think he's a little bit out there. I, I, I largely like like him, man. And as I said, it's very important that you can read somebody's work critically. So you can admire parts of it and you can criticise and dislike parts of it. That's perfectly okay. Yeah. Sure, what's wrong with that? You can still be a fan, but a fan is not necessarily the one who stands up at the end of his talk and says, you're wonderful. The fan will sometimes be the one, Mr Hancock, that's very interesting. And I'm very glad you brought this to our attention. But can I just uh, tackle you on this because I don't agree with you and here's my hypothesis on what you said and blah 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 and you can be gentlemen and agree to disagree that's yeah. proper debate isn't it no, which is what's missing by the way from politics especially in the states at the moment people are just mudslinging from one side to the other 
you know. On that, on the 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 left and the right that we that's in the states, we don't really have so much of that here. Oh, I have you thought? Do. On, do we like is like is there it, a left it, and a right party here? Well, no. I think you see the point is that the two biggest parties are both right. <laughs> so the two parties that we mentioned earlier that have been sort of controlling or in control of the Irish government since the foundation of the state are 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 both sort of what you'd call right leaning conservative parties. Yeah. So it's not, yeah, it's not just quite Have we a left-leaning party? Well, we had, at one time, the Labour Party was quite a socialist party, but I think they swung more to the centre and more to the right over time. And then I think the vacuum there was filled by Sinn Féin, who sort of, in essence, became the party of the left, you know, almost by default. Not, Sinn Féin? Yeah, not... Of course, yeah, if yeah I know not what you mean. just because of their own policies, but because Labour helped them into that position, I think. We didn't come here to talk about politics. <laughs> Please don't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> but I, I, I think that there's something like, like, here's one for you. The two things that people say you shouldn't talk about are religion and politics or spirituality yeah, well, and spent politics. Spent and a lot of time talking about religion, certainly. But, yeah. but as far as I'm concerned, they're practically the only two things worth talking about. You know, how, how we conduct our lives, our morality and our ethics and how our society is governed. I mean, what, what could possibly be more important than, than those two topics? And... The, Astronomy, Irish, sorry, Astronomy. Well, I you think it's much that. more important than <laughs> politics. <laughs> personally speaking, <laughs> you seem genuine when you say that. Do I mean uh, what has astronomy got to do? like? Listen, I, I'm an, I'm an, a, a big astronomy fan. I'm out for all the meteor showers and and all the rest of it. I, I, I love it, love it, and I could talk to you about astronomy all day and night. Can I tell you, very straight, go for it, as, as honestly as I can. Yeah, by all means. I see politics as tedium. I see it as tedious. I have long been concerned with the big questions in life. But that's what politics should be. Well, maybe. And maybe I shouldn't diminish it so readily because it is important. And, of course, uh, for a society to thrive, it has to have a political discourse. Um, It's just I find myself drawn towards the bigger mysteries of life, and which is why I think myths and ancient monuments and anthropology and cosmology have such a huge interest for me because they all concern, I think they're all concerned with our deeper human experience whereas politics can be to an extent seen as, you know, people on different sides of the room chucking mud at each other, some of it's sticking, some of it isn't. I think know? we're, I think we're, we're, there's a cross wire here because when, when I'm talking about politics, I'm not talking about, you know, parties say, I, I, okay. I genuinely couldn't tell you who's in power. In Ireland, I genuinely couldn't. A hand on my heart, I, I genuinely do not know who's in power. Well, it's Finnegale plus a, a coterie of smaller uh, groupings of individuals. I've, I've, I've little to no interest in any of that. Sorry, I thought you meant party politics. No, no not, okay. not at all. Okay, well, well, I should I, allow you the chance to ask the question before. No, 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 no you're, you're right. I can, I can see how <laughs> Iranian would, would, would take that. But what I'm more interested in, in is the the liberal aspect of our of our being and the conservative aspect of our being because we, we all have you know liberal and, and conservative um, kind of tendencies and without understanding you know who we are as, as a species and this is why I think you'd love um, Jordan Peterson because he's a he's a clinical psychologist who specialised in personality and he is I don't know if it's if, if he's pioneered the, the five personality 
traits that, that we all have, namely being neuroticism, which is your sensitivity to uh, negative emotion, openness, your almost self-explanatory, you're, you're willing to share. I'd, I'd be a very open person. I'd, I'd tell you what I had for breakfast and everything in between. Um, so that's neuroticism, openness, Jesus, two out of five. Um, neuroticism, openness. I'm putting a lovely blank here now. Neuroticism, openness. Agreeableness, which is basically how agreeable or disagreeable you are. And I won't even try and think of the other two. They're, they're there somewhere. But the idea being that we're all more or less of these f- big five personality traits. And depending on which way you lean, that will guide in your political belief. Forget about parties, but it'll make you more progressive or more conservative. And just in relation to, to anthropology, there's a the, anthropolo- the anthropological explanation for that left-right... Um, that left-right nature that we have, this progressiveness and um, conservative nature is... I'm going to butcher this now, but again, the sentiment will be will be will be there. We're omnivores, so when we were when we essentially came down from the trees and the climate changed and the land shifted and we had to go about our daily lives in, in different terrain under different conditions, we had to basically find out new food sources in order for the species to to survive over long periods of time. So you needed progressive people to go ooh. What's that? I'll have a little bit of that. But not everybody could be that way. Because if everyone was that way, then everyone might eat the same thing, which was poisonous and over time essentially kill you off or maybe make you sterile. It might be something that you're eating that could have a a, a, a detrimental effect on you over long periods of time. So you need progressives out there trying new things, but you also need conservatives who will basically say, ooh, never, never ate that before, not eating that. And... That that's the politics that I'm talking about is how we how we view the world basically. If any or if all or any of that made sense. <laughs> yeah, um, just not sure what the question was. I don't know if there was a question. Oh, okay, oh, that's okay. That's all right. Um, yeah, no, I am interested in that. Um, I'm sorry for how it's kind of playing out now. You know, in terms of the dichotomy that exists and um it's very evident in you know the whole brexit debate and in uh the rise of donald trump in the states that you know it's it seems to be you know you're either hardline one side or hardline the other side and never the twain shall meet um Whereas I think probably the greatest breakthroughs in human history have come where we've been um, yes, as you say, uh, progressive and exploratory and all the rest, but we also have to have, don't we, uh, we have to have to advance uh, a nature that's conducive to open openness or changing its mind, as it were, you know, being led by, not by pure emotion, but being driven by, you know, a mixture of things, Um you know, following facts and also being open to intuition, etc., etc. Um, yeah, I think that um, probably um, politics and uh, 
psychology are two things that are very closely intertwined. Uh, in my own case, by the way, just for the record, I would say I'm a bit of a liberal. Right. So some people would say libtard. <laughs> to, you know, speaking of dichotomy and the opposites and never the twain. Um, so I'd, I'd be reasonably liberal, uh, I think, especially on my social views and economically then maybe a little bit conservative but 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 I think that's that's key you have to be a bit of both because there is no right if you're if you're too left it goes bad if you're too right it goes bad you need to be somewhere in the middle because sometimes the conservative viewpoint is the right viewpoint and sometimes the conservative viewpoint is the right viewpoint the correct viewpoint say yeah I think there's just far too much of this them and us thing and you're either one or you're the other you know it's like, well, that's a dangerous place to be, I think, you know. It's a bit like after 9-11, George W. Bush said, you're either with us or you're against us. Yes, again, like, the, the other. There was no third option. Yes. Which a lot of countries probably fit into or felt they fit into, which was, no, actually, we're, we're neither. We're, we, we definitely don't want to see you undergoing these mass attacks and suffering and all the rest. But at the same time, we're not going to beat your war drum for you. You know, that kind of way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the point is that I'm a liberal, but I'm also a moderate. So I'm the sort of person I don't like. I step back from vicious and vitriolic debate online. Once people start throwing insults, I just leave the room. Oh, no, absolutely. It, it, it's degenerated I, to nothing at that stage. There was a time when, uh, maybe when I was a bit more rash and a little bit less mature, when I would have maybe added to the insults. But now I just can't stand it. I just think that it degenerates. You only just look. You have a YouTube channel. Uh, Look at my videos. There's there's derogatory comments and then I I don't feed the fish. I'd never read the comments. I I, I do occasionally. (laughs) Um, And I like to respond to the ones where people ask me questions, you know, especially if they're interesting and if the person's genuinely interested in the subject matter. Well, they're your own videos so you can, you know, read your own comments. the amount of YouTube videos where it just entirely enters a juvenile realm of debate where it just instantly almost turns into a slanging match and expletives are used and you're this and you're that and you're a gobshite and you're this, that and the other. And uh, I think that's one of the great difficulties about politics. And the only thing is I can't tie this into mythology, I don't think. Who are the mediators in mythology? You know, okay, the Milesians and the the Danans kind of come to an agreement. Um, I think that is at the instigation of Amrigan, who's sort of the spiritual figurehead of the Milesians. Uh, ironically enough, not the political figurehead. Because the political figureheads are Eremon and Eberfin, and they actually take joint control of Ireland after the Milesians, or after the Dedanans give them Ireland. But after the end of a year, they have a fight, and er- Eremon kills his brother. Because, <laughs> you know, his brother has a bit of an uprising and kind of gets a bit uppity about the situation, you know. And so that's kind of the same thing, really, isn't it? It just degenerates into sort of this sort of chaotic slagging match that we're so we're so facile today and I think we're so shallow that we want the instant gratification and we want to know that we're right and we want to hear the echo of our voices say 
it's almost like we want to look in the mirror and just know that we're we're right in everything we say and do you know and those the greatest minds in history the greatest scientists and the ones who made the greatest discoveries were the ones that were filled with the greatest doubt absolutely there's a there's another saying there um Ignorant people are full of confidence, and intelligent people are full of doubt, or something, yeah. something, something to that. along those yeah, lines. Yeah. yeah, the sentiment again is there. If the if the quote isn't exactly being nailed, yeah. Um, but the politics at the moment is a politics of division, very much so. You see it in this country too. You saw, you see it with the vitriol online, especially. Look, it's very easy. One of the greatest scourges of social media is that it's available to everybody, and not not everybody's able to handle it great portion of people who think that at the first sign of somebody disagreeing with them that they have to launch all their personal missiles you know and launch all the offense they possibly can against this person to try and demean them um that reasonable debate has really gone out the window to a large but extent you know that's identity politics right there in a nutshell though isn't it i mean you have your core set of beliefs and so does everybody that you associate yourself with and anybody who disagrees with even the slightest thing is automatically the other. Uh, there's a, a guy, uh, Michael Sherman, I'm a big fan of. He is a great, um, a great phrase. It's the, the left pole, or the the right pole. So similarly, if you're in the north pole, every direction is south. Yeah. So if you're an extreme on the extreme left, say you're yeah. on the left pole. So no matter what direction you yeah. look, anyone that's not standing on the same ground that you're you are, is on the right. So yeah, well, I just. Well, yeah, I just don't understand why people have to take up such extreme positions, you know. And I think it's part of the severe lack of maturity. And where does that stem from? I don't really know, except for, um, of course, we've really strayed out of my comfort zone here now. Except for, I think it does tie in with the whole discussion about, you know... um, you know what you know your grounding so back in the other interview we talked about the system and the system becoming a machine and therefore spawning machines feeding itself you know and it's like well if a machine decides or if a machine is programmed to be uh, a right-wing machine then it's going to be against everything that the left has to say but um the reason a lot of people go into politics is because that they believe they can serve people and they have a wish to serve people. Uh, the reason some people go into politics is to serve themselves, of course. It's inevitable. Um, I just think that um, ordinary people um, have never been in such a position to express their opinions openly and widely as they have in the past five or ten years never in history because what was your previous method i told you last time you're printing pamphlets or you're standing at a street corner with a loud hailer or you're writing letters to your local newspaper absolutely or you're setting up some sort of a local movement to hold meetings and you're trying to get the press interested in what you're doing. That's the only way you can communicate any message that you have. And you're you're cycling around delivering yeah. pamphlets, yeah. you know? You know, the old-fashioned way, now... But we did it. Oh, I know, yeah. And I know, look, mass movements 
were thus spawned you know but it's it's almost it's too accessible now yeah. you know everyone's too do many it. idiots with opinions you know but every, everyone can do it so nobody does it if that makes sense everybody does it and everybody thinks that they have an absolute right and that oh look you see an awful lot of stuff online you see I see local politicians on Facebook and I wonder why the hell are you on Facebook because you get an awful grief you know yeah of course yeah. they make an announcement and it's a positive announcement and somebody's saying what about this and what about that and you haven't done that about this and you're only out to line your own pockets and blah blah and suddenly there's threats and there's intimidation and there's foul language all over the place what way are we conducting ourselves you know and what do we expect is going to be the outcome of that anger and what is the outcome of anger conflict and what is the out, uh, uh, what is the outcome of conflict suffering yeah division it's going nowhere you know but not to be too pessimistic but what does the what does the mythology tell us what are the lessons that you've learned say over the years to kind of that would help guide us not that you know not that you have all the answers but i mean you've you've gone down this rabbit hole well, and you've been living I, in it for I hate to years. sound like a broken record but we all the way back to the same set of myths in the lower goala and the fact that rather than annihilating the Malaysians, the Dedanans eventually reached an accord with them. Which I think is a very interesting outcome. Given the fact that the Dedanans were apparently deities and were apparently p- powerful and immortal and all the rest. And were being invaded. This was their yeah, homeland. So. By ordinary mortal men. You know, Mananon had the power to scatter their ships at sea. Why didn't they just annihilate them? But instead, they allowed them to come, and they made a an agreement with them, a, a compact or a, you know, a made peace with them, a, an accord. Yeah, to use a political term. Yes, you know. Um. And what became of that story then? So they came. The the Danon retreated to the 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 she. Yeah. And was there a resurgence of the Dedanon? Did they come back at any stage? They did. Uh, they do come back into the stories a few times, yeah. So that story I was talking about today in my blog, Altrum Chiagawatar, um, they, they, that is set around the time that Christianity is arriving in Ireland. So there's still an influence there, you know. And sorry, did you say earlier as well that they, they said they would come back? There is a... Uh, or there was when when Irish people were still spreading folklore orally, there was a long-standing tradition that they would return. Yeah, that's that's not something that's written about in the medieval manuscripts. That's something that was spoken about, you know, orally, locally by people in different parts of Ireland. Because correct me if I'm wrong here, but Jesus and Muhammad are both to return. You know, to to judge the living and the dead, kind of thing. Was that? Was, there is there undoubtedly a sort of a messianic aspect to that mythology, the eternal hope in man for redemption by some great supernatural figure. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's 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 definitely a tie in there. Um. But yes, they did return. I'm trying to think of the other 
instance that I did think about when you asked me, and it's gone out of my head now. I was, they came back. Oh yeah, they came back to help um, uh, Finn and the Fianna at the Battle of Fiontry or the Battle of Ventry. The Fianna, now, that's another name. Yeah. that's there. That's in yeah, there somewhere. People would sort of recognise that. They would sort of be aware of Finn and the Fianna, the great warriors. That now this is a, you know, a later time. The Finn cycle comes after the mythical cycle, which involves the Lower Gawal and the Dedanans and all that. Um, but they come back to help Finn and the Fianna in their battle against Dara Dun and the armies of the world who come to take Ireland. And, uh, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> the Fianna and the Dedanans are victorious against um, all of these massed forces that are coming. It's an interesting one, you know. Um, yeah, so they do re-enter the fray, as it were, you know, at various times. So they're not, they don't just disappear into the she and that's the end of the Dedanans and no more was heard from them the end you know that's not the way it is see for a lot of people the Dedanans are ever living you know and their 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 mythology lives on and they're of all of the things that have happened or all of the things that are described in myths or all the mythical events and happenings and peoples that Tuatha Dé Danann seem to engender the most interest you know I'm not really sure why but there's an endearing nature to them and an, an lasting nature to them you know people are interested in the Dé Danans and, and you know you, you can't help as a student of mythology kind of becoming enamoured by them, you know. And you, you keep referring to, to them as, as them. Like, was there was there six of them? Do you know the kind of way? Or... <laughs> well, you know, there are, there's like, lots of them. And in fact, um, you know, other dozens of them. But again, you see, you, you know this, but I and obviously the, the, the people listening don't. Do you yeah, know the but way? you encounter the same sort of eight or ten you know, there's eight or ten that stand out. And were they archetypal? Like, was there, you know, was Yeah, there... so there's a smith, Gobnew, and there's a healer, Dian Kecht. I'm sorry, when you say smith, like a metal smith? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. Which is interesting, you know, because if, if some of these myths are prehistoric and pre-metal, it's interesting that there should be a metal worker among them. Um, There are several female deities. There are f- deities who have been sort of associated with war and conflict like Macha and Morrigan and Bob, which are all seen as variants of the same goddess. There's Dagda, who's very much the chief of the gods. There's Mananon, who's like a sea god, you know. Uh, Ogma, who um, I think some people have tried to link his name with Oum, that he might be a god of something to do with writing, etc., etc. But he's one of the chiefs as well. Then there's Bridget, and she's supposed to have been the sort of like the patron of poets and artists and writers. And interestingly, it is commonly believed that the Bridget, the goddess, who was a daughter of the Dagda, is the same woman who later became transformed into the Christian saint, Saint Bridget, you know. Yeah. That uh, people, there are people, quite a lot of people actually, interested in Bridget, but interested in both the goddess and the saint, you know. And was there a top god? Was there like a, the equivalent of a Zeus? Oh yeah, Dagda. Okay, so sorry, sorry, sorry. Dagda yeah, yeah. Was, that, was that. And to a sort of an extent, Mananon, Ogma, 
and Lou are kind of all up there, you know. Right. And then you talk about supreme female deities because it was a pantheon. And of course, although Dogda is kind of referred to as the chief god, there are also sort of supreme female deities. And as I said, like the one there that we would identify with locally is Bowen, from whom the Boyne is named, you know. And the whole valley seems to have been consecrated in her honour. You know, and then you have the likes of Morrigan, which translates as the great queen, you know, Moriagon. Um, she's said to have been buried at Brunabonia as well. Um, and then there's a whole sort of series of, like you've, the likes of Bob Jarrog, you know, a, um, a son of Dagda who becomes king after Dagda. And then you have a whole load of lesser known or sort of lesser in stature um, the Danon f- gods and figureheads who enter the tales in various forms. So you have guys like Midger and you have Finbar and, you know, various others. And who were these guys? Just give, if you can give a quick uh, synopsis of, of each of them. Uh, not really, to be honest, because, you know, I'm I'm aware of this, the kind of the supreme ones, but the other ones, they get such little mention. It's very hard to concoct you know, or to construct a sort of a uh, a comprehensive overview of them. But but even me learning that that that's great for me because at least now I know that I'm not missing out on the the story of of one of the guys that you mentioned. Say, yeah, no, I, I obviously I'm missing out on some elements, but I'm not yeah. missing out on the you know the the gist of 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 who they were. There's no, yeah, you have all the major ones, and if you cover those, you've covered probably 80% of the Danon mythology and then you've a host of smaller ones who, who enter the fray at various times but who only maybe get mentioned in one or two stories whereas you know the mythology of the Dagda and Mananon and especially in relation to Brunabonia, Angus Elkmar and Lu, Nuadu, you know they're all there you know Danu or Anya you know um, as I said Morrigan, Bob Maka, Bridget, you know, Bowen. And then there's like a pre, what I consider to be a pre-Neolithic deity in the Kalyach, you know, the old hag. Because she is a ubiquitous, like her, she's present in mythology and folklore and in landscape features all around Ireland. And can you kind of give us the her bio, sir? Well... Where we encounter her um, locally in the most spectacular fashion is at Loch Crewe, where she is said to have been the one who created the cairns on the hilltops. And there's a creation myth about how the Kalyak was jumping from hill to hill, carrying an apron full of stones. And as she jumped onto each hill, she would drop some to form the cairns. And it says that when she got to the last hill, which is called Patrick's Town, she slipped and fell and broke her neck. And thus her creative escapade ended, you know. To me, and I, I'm following intuition here, which I will later back up with facts, I'm sure. <laughs> I hope. God, I'd better. Um, I, I have a hunch that she is a very ancient figure and a very ancient deity from 
Mesolithic or even Paleolithic times which is interesting because I said didn't I the last time that the Ice Age wiped everything out yes. and we had to start afresh but presumably many people migrated from Ireland and then returned but then again what the Ice Age did it last a thousand or a couple of thousand years yeah uh, I was supposed to look that up because you asked me that the last time and I well, didn't precisely know and I didn't look it up but uh, several gu- thousand years yeah I have a guy coming on he's a um, a glacial geologist oh brilliant so well, he's he actually know. he's toured the states was it last year or the year before he's literally toured the states giving talks about glacial geology so. yeah and he's from you know he's from the area well maybe you could ex- extrapolate that information from him because I'd be very interested in just finding out exactly and if he had any insight, actually, into, um, you know, what was likely to have happened to the population, would they have been able to effect a proper escape into Britain or Europe? Or where would they have gone to avoid the calamity of the ice? And, um, yeah, see, what I'm interested in is the I, I mentioned in Mythical Ireland that the myth of the Mata, according to Michael Wentz, who I mentioned the last time, um, he was the guy that had this controversial theory of two different groups of mythology and and some people said he created a sort of a racist mythology but he's fascinating nonetheless uh he 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 maintains that the story of the killing of the dragon or the beast is at least 20,000 years old um so in that time frames like if if the mata story is a really ancient story is it pre ice age and therefore the question is did it as you maybe speculate there did it migrate with people from Ireland into Europe and come back again with uh, the new settlers whenever they came back after the ice retreated you well, know it would be it would be kind of ins- maybe instinctive is the right word the wrong word but I, that that makes sense to me because my understanding of ice ages is that it's not as if you know what's that over there? Oh my God! It's a giant ice sheet. Run! Do you know that kind of way? Like it, it got progressively colder, so it, it was a degree or two colder maybe every yeah. year. And it's animals a slow know to creeping a, process. Absolutely, yeah. but animals know to to migrate away from from such conditions. So why we wouldn't almost makes no sense. So we, yeah. presumably yeah. we did get the fuck out of Dodge there ah, well, and, and return. Yeah, I think if yeah, because life's going to become unbearable. Whatever, whatever about the cold. Humans can live in cold. Yes, of course. Like yeah. the Eskimos, you know. Uh, the point is that when the cold is an ice sheet that is covering everything that you can hunt and grow, then you, when you can't eat ice, yes, it's not going to keep you alive. Of course. You know, then you have to flee, you know. What I'm interested in about the Mata story is the Mata was said to have licked up the boin. Till it so became this motto is this kind of the monster, the, the, the monster. Yes, yeah. Okay. He licked up the boyne until it became a dry river valley. Was he a glacier? Okay. Is that a story about a glacier gouging out the valley? Because that's how the boyne valley was formed. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Glace, glacier, or you know, the movement of ice was what formed a lot of the landscape that we know today. Formed it all. All the drumlins and all the moraines and all the stuff. Stuff, yeah. <laughs> geographical term. <laughs> yes, Anthony. Stuff. Stop blinding us with all this jargon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This jargon. Yeah, but um, no. From my limited understanding of it, um, yeah. But uh, I just, I'm just interested in that idea. 
that may be the Mata. There is a, uh, an element of that story that refers to the ice sheets gouging up the landscape, you know. Well, here, here's an interesting take on the, 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 the idea of a dragon, which apparently is synonymous with, with, all, um, with all cultures. And this is the... I'm taking this from Jordan Peterson. Now, I don't know if this is his idea or if he's um, just repeating somebody else's words, but the idea of the dragon was that it was... It was the embodiment of all our primal fears. So when we were literally monkeys, well before we were were, um, humans or anything like an even an early human, or maybe just an early human, say, we would have been preyed upon by snakes, cats, large birds. Was there another one? Snakes, cats, large birds. But even just, if if you... combine the three of them you've got the claws of the cat the kind of the body of the snake and it could fly yeah so that was the the idea of a dragon was essentially the an archetypal ultimate predator it was it was all your fears it was the worst thing possible okay yeah makes a certain amount of sense doesn't it so uh just i just thought i'd, I'd throw mm. that out there but jordan peterson he's certainly a man that you're really really gonna really going to like he was a, he's a massive student of uh, of Jung and Nietzsche and Campbell um, he did a, a series only recently called The Psychological The Psychological Significance of the Biblical Stories um, a very controversial figure but a, f- a fascinating character a really yeah. really fascinating guy he speaks a lot about the this idea of your of the shadow as as Jung did yeah um, but uh, yeah I couldn't recommend him to, to you and to, yeah, to yeah. everybody have a look. everyone listening definitely yeah yeah but um, lest I forget, there was a comment on YouTube in relation to your um, conversation with me the last day. Did did you did you get a chance to read it by chance? Yes. So why didn't I you did. tell me about the the tunnels to Egypt, Anthony? Well, Fran, um, that's because the aforementioned tunnels linking Ireland to Egypt don't exist. You can't prove Shockingly. they don't exist, though. Well, I do you know what? If I was a, <laughs> if I was a betting man, I'd bet my house on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, there there's a thing that's been shared widely on social media, claiming that there's uh, a Stone Age tunnel system all over Europe. Uh, yes, there are Stone Age tunnels, and yes, there are tunnels that are of prehistoric age in different European countries. No, they are not connected. No, it's not <laughs> possible to walk from Ireland to continental Europe or Africa via tunnel. What nonsense, <laughs> you know? It's like, come on, guys. The truth is out there, Anthony. Open ah, your look, eyes. Get off your knees. There's a lot of... Uh, uh, there's a folk tale that's common around Ireland that different um, sacred sites are linked by underground tunnels. Now, I think that's partly derived by the existence of so many souterrains, because there are a lot of souterrains in Ireland which are medieval structures that were used either for, or probably for both, um, storing uh, grain and food and keeping it cool, and also as hiding places from Viking raids. So I think that's likely to stem from that. The idea of sacred sites being linked by tunnels, to me, suggests that they're actually linked in true cosmology or astronomy, that if there's a story about two sites that are linked, it may be that they're linked through a solstitial sunrise alignment or some sort of a lunar alignment. I don't know. That's speculation on my part, just intuitive speculation on my part. Uh, But no, there are no tunnels linking Dublin (laughs) with 
Giza. So you say. Or Newgrange. <laughs> Ironically, something that is true is that Newgrange is located exactly one-tenth of the Earth's circumference from the Great Pyramid of Giza. It is 36 degrees of arc from Newgrange to Giza. This is the type of thing now that I've heard people complain about Graham Hancock. Yeah. That's a bit too far out. Well, the the idea, the complaint that I've heard is basically that pick two points on the earth and it's bound to be, you know, one hundredth of something or, you know, twice yeah. something else. Okay, or. okay. That's fine. And I understand that argument. But this isn't two arbitrary random points. What is the largest and most famous prehistoric monument in Ireland? It's Newgrange. What is the largest, most famous prehistoric monument in Egypt? It's the Great Pyramid of Giza. So that ain't a coincidence. We're not just picking two arbitrary points there. True. But I'm not defending it. I'm just saying it's it's fascinating. I'm not saying that the people who built Newgrange, uh, sorry, people who built Giza, if you if you believe the chronology that the pyramids came after Newgrange. What is what's your take on that? Because is there a bit of ah. Uh, like what? What's the what's the lit? What does the literature say? Like if I was to Google it now, how old is Newgrange and how old is Newgrange? About three thousand one hundred and fifty BC, give or take a century, and the pyramids are approximately uh, f- Newgrange, Stonehenge, pyramids. Pyramids are a thousand years later, I think. Five hundred older. No newer. Okay, I thought the pyramids were about five thousand years old. Less. Apparently. Okay. You we said don't know how they can prove that. Newgrange is, is... The great thing about Newgrange and Nouth and Douth is that they're earthen mounds with with um, faunal or uh, plant remains in them that can be carbon dated. Oh, lovely. In the layerings. But presumably but there's the same in the pyramids. Don't think so. It's all just stone upon stone upon stone. But sure, I've, I've been in them. So, now I obviously didn't see any artifacts because, you know, they've obviously been put into museums since, but they had large cavities, they had large passageways. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, you know, tombs containing, they've germinated seeds, I think, out of the pyramids in Giza. I think so. I think the pyramids are generally dated later to Newgrange anyway. That's what's claimed here anyway, (laughs) that Newgrange is older than the pyramids. Um, I just think, I, I do think it's fascinating that they're separated by that coincidental distance. Uh, was that intended? Well, geez, that's very hard to argue, isn't it? I know what you mean. Yeah, no, you who, know. who knows? It's unlikely, but you can never say never. No, absolutely. You have to keep an open mind. But as another saying goes, keep an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. <laughs> <laughs> Love that one. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true, which again comes back to the point of you can enjoy reading somebody, but if their ideas seem a little bit too far out, then acknowledge that, you know. Of course. It's just that there are a lot of people out there just willing to read almost anything that they encounter and they're not able to critically analyse it, you know. Of course, of course. like, what is the likelihood of that based upon evidence and, you know, um, uh, criteria that you might establish to uh, prove it or disprove it, you know. Does anybody ever have that discussion? Or did they just read a book? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Can't believe that Newgrange was used as a navigational beacon for UFOs. <laughs> you know, without ever questioning it, you know. Well, hang on, you know. Is it possible that it was just built by ordinary men and women? 
of course, yeah. You know? yeah no, yeah. it has to be built by <laughs> aliens, god damn it. <laughs> come here, Anthony, but before I let you go, I have to get a couple of questions over to you that have come in from the listeners. So, oh, great. One, one, but the most common one was what you thought of that that comment that was on the left on the YouTube video. The other ones were... Apparently there was a, a or was or is or is going to be a big dig at doubt and that there's some large discovery that's been made that's been kept on the QT and very hush hush. Do you know anything about that or do you know what that person might be alluding to or Okay. Well there has been no archaeological digging at doubt as in the megalithic passage tomb of doubt, sister site of Newgrange. No. Okay. There is a plan to carry out a an archaeological excavation of a deserted medieval village in the immediate vicinity of Douth, the same field. Not far from there is Douth Hall, which contains the remains of a one of the most substantial uh, early Neolithic or sorry, late Neolithic or early Bronze Age henges, uh, an embanked enclosure. Uh, ingloriously called Site Q or the Douth Henge. Archaeologists have been on site there for the past few years. I'm not aware that any substantial digging has taken place at the Henge itself. I'm aware that some limited amount of digging has taken, taken place in the grounds. There was an investigation of a mound down near the river that it looked like a mound but there was no evidence visually that it could be a passage to him and there was a, a limited excavation took place there the results haven't been published to my knowledge but uh information has come to me that that dig has suggested that this is just a natural feature and is not a, a man-made mound but we await the publication of results what's fascinating about site q henge is that the two openings i wrote about this in island of the setting sun the two openings are aligned on summer solstice sunrise and it was long thought that one of the openings wasn't original with the mound that it had been broken open at some stage in recent history to allow for the passing of agricultural uh, machinery it is my um information now that it's more likely that that opening is actually original to the mound there are other features in that landscape that I think are going to prove very fascinating. One of them is what's called a ceremonial or a raised routeway that appears to lead from the passage tomb of Douth through the lands at Douth Hall over to that henge. And it stops at the southwestern entrance and then re-emerges again at the northeastern entrance. And this raised routeway of unknown date may be a prehistoric feature. So there's definitely interesting stuff to come out of Douth Hall. I'm not sure that there's been any major discovery um, that could be just speculation. Or maybe I just don't know. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Another question. Which is possible. Of course. Another question that came in was in relation to the building of the M3, specifically from Tara towards Navan direction. And somebody wrote in basically saying that a lot of stuff was uncovered and they just basically took note of the GPS coordination of the GPS coordinates and just kind of ploughed on. Now, I remember at the time when all that, all that controversy was going on, my own 
opinion at the time again was look you can't stick a shovel in the ground in Ireland without digging up some sort of ancient site of some description how accurate is that mentality or I mean should we should the road have been built have you any particular opinion on it yourself was it too close Um, yeah look I disagreed with the routing of the M3 at the time Um, didn't see the sense of routing it through the Gowra Valley between Tara and Screen um, it actually took a serious detour from the straight line route, which would have been to the west of the Hill of Tara. It was always controversial. Um, a lot of people were arguing that the railway line should have been rebuilt. There was an existing track bed there from Dublin to Navan. Um, the route of the motorway sh- maybe should have changed. Some people were arguing for a widening of the end, the existing N3 you know, maybe a contraflow, two lanes in one direction, one lane in the other, etc., etc., reversing in the evening for the evening rush hour. There's much bigger debates there anyway, which is the the uh, um, the sustainability of, you know, um, uh, road transport and why we seem to have such a fascination with it in Ireland and why we have completely and abysmally failed when it comes to mass transport and public transport systems and even our fastest railway uh, capability is 90 miles per hour or whatever that equivalent is in uh, in um, in kilometers per hour it's it's we're probably we have probably the slowest intercity train speeds in europe which is a sad reflection on us in relation to the archaeology um yes it's very true that if you dig in ireland you're going to encounter archaeology it is not true that uh, they just recorded the GPS coordinates and, and then covered everything over or dug everything up. What happened was what they call preservation by record, a full archaeological investigation or excavation of the sites that were uncovered was undertaken. They were all recorded and photographed and then the motorway was built. Um, look, it's a controversial area. I think most followers of Mythical Ireland will know my stance on it, which is I... I was against the routing and uh, I think you can't be ploughing big motorways and associated junctions and possible future retail and industrial parks in the vicinity of sensitive archaeological landscapes such as the Hill of Tara. Uh, at the same time, um, what they unearthed, for instance, at Lismullen was a henge, a series of post holes. <sighs> One could argue that there wasn't much left to preserve. I'm not defending the building of the motorway and I'm not defending that crazy period of time. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, within a few months of the M3 opening, the government and the economy collapsed. Um, so there is a message there, I think. You shouldn't sometimes uh, just plough your way with abandon through uh, uh, such a you know, a pristine and a, a major archaeological landscape. And some people are saying saying that the government was warned, you know, against it. And it was bad news because, um, as I said, no sooner had it opened than everything crashed. Yeah, <laughs> ironically, more or less, you yeah. Know. And there, was, there wasn't as much of a need of it as there was, or if there was any need for it. And of course, they plonked loads of tolls on it, which meant a whole lot of people wouldn't use it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so what's the sense of it all, really, you know? Um, yeah, I, I was kind of depressed about it. Having said that, I use motorways to get to and from work, so it's a bit two-faced of me to say I'm not against motorways per se, 
but I just do think that we're very short-sighted in relation to our overall vision. And unfortunately, archaeology suffers. It always does. Archaeology is such a minor concern for most uh, for for most politicians and for most big business. Is it because we have so much of it? No, no. I just not not archaeology, but you know, I, I stuff to dig up, basically. Yeah, I don't think we've. I don't think we appreciate it. I don't think we appreciate what we have. And uh, we are actually slowly getting rid of it piece by piece as time goes on, you know. Um, more damage has been done by human hands to our archaeology in the past century than has been done by any other factor, you know. Of course. Um, so we've lost an awful lot, actually. Um, however, there is an argument to be made that, you know, if there are 40 or 50,000 ring forts, does it matter if one or two of them are lost here and there, you know? But just depends on your standpoint you know and in relation to what we do have left you or did I hear you mention that you were um, organising a tour of the name I was escaping me over Old Castle Direction you're being attacked there by a spider I think are you? <laughs> <laughs> yes you noticed sorry I apologise <laughs> you're right, you're <laughs> but you're you're organising a tour of where is it over Old Castle Direction? Lock Crew. Lock Crew. Can never think of the name of Lock Crew. Yeah, the locals there are organising a series of events around the spring equinox, which is a big deal at Lock Crew because Cairn T is aligned towards the rising sun on the spring and the autumn equinox. Um, so, um, yeah, there's a there's going to be a three day uh, sort of equinox festival, as it were, uh, on the St Patrick's weekend. Okay. Um, I think that's Saturday the 18th, and Sunday the 19th, and Monday the 20th. I hope I have my dates right. Um, and as part of that, the plan is that there's going to be a walk. Uh, no, I'm wrong. It's Sunday the 18th, uh, Monday the 19th. Yes, yeah, so Saturday the 17th, Monday the Sunday the 18th, and Monday the 19th. Um, there's going to be a walk of the landscape by local guide Malachy Hand. And that will... Um, in, encompass some of the hills of Loch Crew and over then to Cairn Tee and I'm going to be giving a talk as well uh, about my, my latest work, my latest book which contains quite a substantial section about Loch Crew um, that'll feature some of my photographs as well so that'll be interesting you know No brilliant and listen anybody who's listening anybody who's stayed with us this long now we're just we're a couple of minutes past the three hour it's mark It's an endurance award you need <laughs> But put it this way anybody who's lasted this long is interested in this event in Loch Crew. Yeah. So will the details, like the specifics, be up on your, your Facebook page? Yes, or? Uh, that's the actually the one place that I, I will um, be most likely to publicise is on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Mythical Ireland. Okay, and as we did in the wrap-up for the, our last conversation, I'm just going to get you to rhyme off the the, the usual places for the places where your work can be found and where people oh, yeah. who've enjoyed this can kind of learn a bit more. Yeah, well, my website is mythicalireland.com or mythicalireland.ie takes you to the same place. Facebook is facebook.com forward slash mythicalireland. So they're the most, the two most substantially used uh, um, med- media, as it were, for my work. Um, I'm on Twitter, twitter.com slash mythicalireland. I'm on Instagram as Mythical Ireland. I'm on Flickr as Mythical Ireland. And I'm on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Mythical Ireland. So, you know, if you want to support what I do uh, and help me to 
turn it into a vocation and to keep unearthing and digging away at these myths and trying to find meaning in everything, um, then I'd appreciate your support. And of course, don't forget you can buy my books as well. You know, my books are sort of really where um, my 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 work has taken the most concrete form, as it were. Um, so if you just search for Anthony Murphy on Amazon, uh, you'll find all my books on there. I don't think we've mentioned that you're a photographer in the six odd hours that we've been talking. <laughs> um, oh, well, maybe briefly. Yeah, that's that's been a sort of a long-standing passion or hobby of mine, and it's been great actually for Mythical Ireland as a project because it's enabled me to present a very visual side of the monuments and the landscape to followers of Mythical Ireland, both on the website and on Facebook, and indeed in my books because that's where people can actually see you know pictures of the things that I'm describing so it's all my own photography that's in the books which is great it, I didn't have to go begging borrowing and stealing not that I'd steal um photographs from other sources you know um yeah so it's a it's a, it's a big passion of mine well the the, Im- the images are fantastic and your book Mythical Ireland that you so kindly lent me the uh, the last day you were here I haven't gotten to it yet because it's just time you know yourself I'm, I'm busier than, than most but I have gone had a quick flick through it and the, the pictures in it if nothing else are just amazing they really really are and I, I love the idea of maybe picking a couple and buying them from you they're available have you you can buy them through the website can't you yes okay, yeah so I sell prints on the website I, yeah I love the idea of getting a print from the website and hanging it in my house because as a almost a constant reminder of you know essentially where I come from because yeah. and I think there's, there's something there's something really kind of poetic about having a, a photo of whatever it is, whether it's something up in Loch Crewe or whether it's Newgrange or some monument or, or whatever it is in Ireland. Yeah. Having that hanging pride of place in, in your home, I think, is akin to having, you know, a, a picture of the Virgin Mary, you know, 50 years ago or more recently or, or whatever. It's it's something it's we're of it. You know, it's, it's, yeah. Irish people are, are of these stories and, and yeah. these places. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Anthony, listen, it's an absolute pleasure having you on again. I must get you to do up a list of questions for Robbie Meehan, who'll be joining me in the next month or so, the glacial geologist. So if you have any questions like that. Yeah, I'd be um, very interested. Yeah, no, absolutely. Listening to him, yeah. I'd very much like to get you back on once I've digested Mythical Ireland. So we might leave it another while, but you're an absolute friend of the show, a man certainly living his life off the lead. I wish you all the very best, particularly with your Patreon account. And to the people listening, get on the whole Patreon buzz. I mean, you can go on. I've committed to it. Now, I'm giving you a euro a month. Yeah. And I give all the other guys that I, I follow their work on Patreon a euro a month. And I just, I love the idea of contributing to the people that I, I love consuming their their work basically and I'm a big proponent of this idea of paying for what you want to see more in the world so if, if for, for example just to flesh that out a little bit if you don't like McDonald's and factory if you don't like factory farming don't eat at McDonald's if you've enjoyed this conversation throw a euro a month to your Patreon account or more if you can afford it yeah. and start supporting the things that you know have some meaning and some purpose and, you know, will generally improve the world. Yeah, it's a very nice way of putting it, actually, yeah. Um, But yeah, listen, again, an absolute pleasure having you on and I look forward to the next time we speak. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fascinating. (laughs) Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, sir.